This episode is brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions, my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin. Here's the deal. We're coming into summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. It's getting very hot. And if you're like me and you're trying to get outside and climb on rock, sweaty hands are once again a factor in your performance. Luckily for all of us, my pal Justin Brown, the founder of Rhino Skin Solutions, has a perfect solution. Rhino's line of antiperspirant products are a game changer when it comes to climbing in warm or humid conditions, especially if you have sweaty skin like I do. Check out the Performance Cream, Dry Spray, and Tip Juice to keep your hands dry as you tackle your summer projects. And check out my episode with Justin way back in episode 22 of The Nugget to learn how to use all of these products and how to take great care of your skin for whatever rock type or type of climbing you love to do. Head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order of Rhino's Antiperspirant products. Again, that's the performance cream, the dry spray, the tip juice. Stock up on all three for the summer. Once again, that's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your order. This episode is also brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I've had a lot of great conversations lately on the podcast, and one of the things that keeps coming up again and again when it comes to getting better at climbing is consistency. There's no magic hangboard program or bouldering routine that is going to get you super duper strong in six weeks. The key to making lasting gains in your strength and your climbing technique is consistency, just climbing or training regularly for years and years. But consistency can be hard. If you have kids or you live in a city, work a nine to five job, and you only have the evenings free to train, and you have to compete with crowds at the gym and commute to the gym, it can be really hard to stick to a consistent schedule. Luckily, the folks at Grasshopper designed the perfect solution. The Grasshopper board was designed to give you an entire climbing gym experience right in your home or garage. And the best part, they did such a good job with the hold shaping and the layout that the Grasshopper board will be right for you whether you are literally a beginner or you climb V15. It's so efficient, it's so good for training, and most important, it's super fun to climb on. But don't take my word for it because the folks at Grasshopper just want you to try it out and see for yourself. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com. They've got a brand new, beautiful website. Or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. Check out their boards. Reach out to their sales team to see which board solution might be right for you. And be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8 by 10 foot Grasshopper board, and you'll save even more money if you upgrade to a larger board. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com. Let them know I sent you and check out the Grasshopper board. Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Dr. Jared Vagey. Jared is a doctor of physical therapy, and he is known as the Climbing Doctor. He is the author of Climb Injury Free. And there's a brand new edition of that book all about climbing injuries, rehabbing, and preventing climbing injuries. And I was really excited to talk to Dr. Vagey and do a whole episode on how to prevent some of the most common climbing injuries that he sees in his practice and to see what exercises all of us can add to our training to try to prevent them. So we tackled 
knees, shoulders, elbows, fingers, primarily in this conversation. And it was awesome. I hope it's super helpful. It certainly was for me. We actually recorded this conversation way back in February when I was still in Waco. So it's a little bit out of order. We actually recorded this before the Carrie Cooper episode. And if you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Carrie Cooper, Jared and I got into a lot more of the practical stuff, how to actually implement exercises in your routine that'll help prevent some of these common injuries. So I think they'll complement each other well, and I think you'll enjoy this episode. There's tons of resources in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com for this episode if you guys want to learn more. I really hope you enjoy this one. And without further ado, here is Dr. Jared Beggy. Well, Dr. Jared Vagie, it is great to meet you face to face over Zoom, and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm psyched. Awesome. Me too. I uh, <laughs> you're you're a perfect person to ask about all of these geeky questions that I have and that listeners have. I actually got a lot of listener questions for you. So I think part of today's conversation is going to be Q&A and and digging into some uh, case studies, you know, people submitting their aches and pains and asking your thoughts on it. So I think that'll be really helpful for people. And I kind of have a roadmap that takes us through uh, how you've seen climbing injuries evolve. Having worked in the space for so long, I'd love to get your thoughts on how to prevent some of the biggest ones how to rehab some of the biggest ones and things like that. So we have a lot of really great, helpful, tangible, scientific stuff to dive into today. But I have to kick things off with uh, probably the most curiosity-inspiring question I've ever got from a listener for a guest. And this is actually a question from our friend Steve Bechtel. Oh, man. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve writes, I want to know more about Dr. Veggie's brief, in parentheses, career as a hip hop artist. Oh, my God. All right. So did did Steve really write that? Yeah, you really wrote that. And I had no no idea. And it shocked me because I don't know you, but I just... You're the climbing doctor. So I was just like, no way. I have to hear about this. Where did that come from? Exactly. Yeah. um, Wow. Thanks, Steve, by the way. That's a great way to kick that off. Um, All right. So, yeah, I don't know where to start with this, but in high school, I I got really into hip hop. I loved it. And um, I, you know, I uh, would invite all my friends up into my uh, room uh, that had black lights and posters and we would turn the beats up and we would freestyle. And I have to be honest, I'm not very good at it, but I worked really hard and I would freestyle rap in the shower and I'd put all these lines and rhymes together and I I got really psyched on it. Um, And then I would go to college and we would be at, you know, we'd be at kind of like a gathering and I'd say, hey, everyone come around. And I would do a, a little freestyle rap in line and so whenever i see steve i try and we're at like a climbing conference or something i'll i'll do you know i'll do my thing but i i will say i am not good at this but for some reason i just start rhyming things and uh 
I guess that that's how, how it all goes. So I don't know if that helps at all, but uh, I'm a very serious person professionally. Um, but, uh, you know, but I have a little bit of a, a goofier side with that. I love it. I love it. I, that brings just so many questions to mind. Did you have a hip hop name? Like they so often have nicknames, right? People that are yeah. really into rap or hip hop. Were you DJ Vaggy or what was your, did you have a hip hop no, name? No, this was the irony. This was before I was rock climbing um, and my hip hop name was J-Rock. So that was, uh, <laughs> I go, ticky, ticky, talk, man, my name is J-Rock. And that was kind of my my style. So, uh, so yeah, so now, so you know, I, I don't really rap these days. I'm a little bit, uh, you know, out of out of uh, practice from it. But um, yeah, if you ever, if you type J-Rock online, I don't know. I, I hope no one does that right now. Oh, I will be doing it. that. I was going to ask that next. That was my next question is, is there any evidence of this that exists on the internet? So I got really into asking girls to prom and homecoming through rap songs. And so I would make a, a, you know, record, you know, a little rap song with those, you know, junky USB mics. And I'd be like, you know, guess what? What do you see? Girl, will you go to prom with me? Or something like that. And uh, I'd have my friends in the background. And and, uh, so you can find those on my hard drive in a password protected folder. Um, but I, I don't think you can find those anywhere else. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fine. I'll settle for that. I'm tempted to make you do it, put you on the spot, but, um. Oh, to do a freestyle rap. Right. I, oh man. If you're uh, up for it, I'll shut my I'll, mouth. I'll do a little, I'll do it if you do it. I'll do it if you do it. <laughs> That's you not fair. Go, uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll, I'll do a couple lines to start and then you'll continue. As long as you go first and then I can just ask a, the next question and move on. <laughs> All right. I'll rap slow and you'll rap fast. I'm kicking it here with Steven on the Nugget Podcast. We're talking about climbing and injury prevention. If I do bad, I'm going to get detention. All right. That's, I, I think I think those four lines are, someone will get an idea for how uh, inadequate my skills are. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my gosh. Amazing. So, okay, J-Rock, you like chose a name that, um, you know, that turned out to be your destiny. You've become oh, the climbing yeah. doctor. Take me on that journey. I, I have no idea how long you've been doing this, actually. Um, I guess I have some sense of that. But yeah, what? how did you first... I get, I, I'm assuming climbing came first before getting into doing what you do now. How did climbing come into your life? Yeah, well, I, in college, I ran track in college. I you know had some pretty bad hamstring injuries. I tore it like six or seven times. Oof. And there was just like a climbing wall on campus and I was a sprinter and climbing was like pretty slow and controlled, at least how I climb. Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, Me too. so I just, yeah. Okay. So I just loved the feeling of being able to control my body, honestly, without getting hurt. And I just got psyched on climbing. Um, and so I'd start just like at that little rock wall on campus. I'd then start going outside got into a group, started, you know, and just kind of took it from there and um, just got hooked and addicted to it. So that was kind of my gateway or my entryway. And it was like the only thing, like I couldn't run fast without tearing my hamstring. And so climbing was like, oh man, I can challenge myself on every level and not get hurt. So that was, I was just psyched on that. Were you starting to study this stuff at the same time? What was your path in college? 
Yeah, I mean, I was I knew I wanted to be a physical therapist. I wanted to work with track and field. That was like okay. a big thing. Um, and I was like, you know, I want to you know work with the U.S. Olympic team. I want to do track and field. That's like what I want to do professionally as a physical therapist. Um, and then it started shifting towards climbing because I'm like, well, this track thing, I'm not as excited about this myself, but climbing is fun. And at that time, there was no... I mean, there was no climbing physical therapist or anything like that. It was just something that obviously all of us did that we loved doing. Um, but there wasn't, there was no intention of that being an avenue of a career path. When was this? So this was in, I graduated college, undergraduate in 2006 is when I finished. Okay. So this was, yeah, this was about... I don't know, 16 years ago. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, do you have any distinct memories? Like, were there any initial light bulb moments where you're studying physiology, you're studying maybe exercise science and things like this, um, where you, you stumbled into something that directly helped your own climbing? Does anything like that come to mind? Well, I think it's, I mean, an interesting story. So this is when I was at USC. So I went on, I finished undergraduate. I went on to get like my doctorate in physical therapy, um, which is like a three-year program after, um, you know, after you do your undergraduate work. And I remember I was like studying physiology, muscle, like basically everything related to the human body. And I had this all in my head but I wasn't really applying it. So I remember that at this time I was actually, I was living with my grandma um, and she was like my best friend. She's like in her nineties. And we were just like, <laughs> we were just like kick it. So I was living at her house and this is a house from like the 1920s or 30s. Having hip hop parties in the attic or something. <laughs> exactly. I was having hip hop parties with my grandma. I was playing like loud music in the garage. Like, wow. so anyway, uh, I'd be hanging on the door frame, basically, you know, the molding, like, I wasn't, I didn't have a hangboard. I was like, I just want to get my fingers strong. So I'd be hanging on this like ratchety, you know, molding on the door frame. Um, and I think I did that like six days straight. I was like doing pull-ups. I was just all about it. And I went out to Joshua Tree to get on just a route I was psyched on. It's like called Course and Buggy. Um, and I just remember I was like super tired. My fingers were like weak and I got to the exit move. I pulled through that exit move sprained a ligament in my finger, felt a pop in my shoulder. And that's actually, if I look back, that's kind of when it clicked, when I was like, oh, I should probably be applying what I'm learning in school to like my own climbing. Mm. Um, and that's when I started having fun with it and started being like, oh, what can I do with these exercises and all these things I'm learning to just like be better at climbing and a little bit more resilient. So that's like, I, I think if I were to go back and like pinpoint a time that's what pops in my head yeah yeah i love that i love that and take me on the journey to becoming the climbing doctor i assume that that wasn't i mean of course it wasn't a viable career path in 2006 um was it yeah. just starting to experiment on yourself and maybe helping friends of yours climber friends or did you try to you know get climbers to pay for this stuff right off the bat how did that come to be yeah, I mean, it first started with myself, right? Just trying to figure out all this stuff. And then, you know, I started, so I went into a residency program, which is like one year after you finish physical therapy school. And it's this additional year of training. Um, and then I practiced for like a year or two. And then I went into a fellowship program, which is like an additional year of training. So it was at that point where I was in this fellowship program 
Um, I was taking like extra, like basically you take all these weekend courses, you have mentoring, all this stuff. And in order to do that, I decided to only work in the clinic three days a week instead of five days. So I had these like two free days and I was like, I just want to learn. And so that's when I took time, started putting together everything new about climbing. And then I reached out. I don't know if you remember Deadpoint Magazine. Oh, yeah. It was around like back in the day. DPM. And so Deadpoint, yeah, DPM was like, I was like reading that all the time. I was like, oh, this thing is awesome. And yeah, I was, I was like fresh out of school. And so I couldn't afford like climbing magazine or anything like that. So, you know, DPM, I think, was a free magazine. Is that all the climbing gyms? And I was like, you know what? I would love to be in this magazine. I want to like write a column for this magazine. And so, yeah, so I reached out to guys at DPM and I was like, hey, like, you know, I just finished physical therapy school. Like I'm a climber. I like know all this stuff. Like, can I like write some stuff for you? And I didn't hear back. And so I wrote them again. I didn't hear back. And I was like, oh, that's weird. So I wrote them again. And uh, so I got a message back. I ended up doing a column in there. Uh, started like one article turned into a column. And then from there, I was like, oh, let me teach some people. And so at a local climbing gym, I started doing like clinics. And then I started seeing some climbers as patients and it started building. You kind of, there, there wasn't really that many people doing this, right? At, at that time, there was like no one doing that. And so then I started going to climbing festivals, you know, and doing some like clinics at festivals. And at there, I'd meet some pro climbers and say like, hey, you know, let me check out this injury and that, oh, wow, that was, that was helpful. Let me refer you to somebody. And that's kind of like the process of, of how everything evolved. And then I wrote some books and, you know, kind of went, went towards that route of, of education. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, it makes me so curious given how much training and knowledge about climbing and injury prevention and things like this have changed just in my lifetime of climbing. Like I started, at age 18 in 2007 and was just, you know, hungrily scouring the internet for anything. And now we're like awash in information and I feel like I'm drowning in it half the time, probably like contributing so it, <laughs> contributing to it with this podcast. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's so much now. There's so much information. And it seems like we've, you know, a lot of kind of base principles, some of them are still the same, some have changed. I'd, I'd love to hear what was some of the earliest stuff you were writing about in those magazine columns and do you cringe thinking back to any of it or is it tried and true you know do, do those things still stand up yeah i mean i remember so when i was first seeing climbers the thing i was like addicted to hooked on i wanted to tell everyone was I would notice like, you know, you, you go to physical therapy school and everyone's like, sit with good posture, right? You're like slumped forward. You're like, all right, that's the first thing you say, okay, have good posture, right? And so I just went after, squeeze your shoulder blades back, keep them engaged, keep your shoulders down. And that was a powerful message that I was sending early on when not that many people were sending that message and climbing. And I look back at that now, especially a lot of the newer research that's coming out and that's one of the things I actually take a step back and say, when people see me in the clinic, I'm telling more people to disengage than to engage their shoulder blades and mm. telling more people to relax the muscles in their back than to over recruit. And that's one thing I wouldn't say it's a 180, but it's because it's on a case by case basis. But I find myself reversing some of that story more often than not. And I give this like 
example for people to try, you, you could try this too as well, is like if you put your hands in front of you, like your elbows straight and your hands like straight in front of you. Okay, so it's like you're driving a car with your seat kicked way back or something with your <laughs> yeah, arms perfectly yeah, exactly. straight. Yeah, exactly. Yep, you got it. And then squeeze your shoulder blades back as hard as you can. And now try to lift your arms up while squeezing your shoulder blades as far back as you can. <laughs> How yeah, far did you go? I got so about you... got about eight inches of, of range there. Yeah, yeah. It feels really terrible. <laughs> yeah, and and so that's like when when climbers come in and they're like overly engaging their shoulders. You want your shoulders engaged when they're from zero to ninety degrees. So when your your palm is down by your side, or when it's straight out in front of you, like you're driving a car. But when you get up in those higher ranges, you gotta let it go. And so that's something that I feel like I've spent some decent amount of time trying to reverse the narrative on that when I first started, I was so adamant about just see bad posture while climbing, you know, engage your shoulders. Mm. And if and if stuff is overhung, think about like a 30 degree, 40 degree overhung route. You need to slump your shoulders to generate dynamic motion forward, you know, to create that sling to to move to the next hold. And so those are some things I've, uh, you know, I've kind of uh, changed my philosophy on over time. Yeah. Along that line, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on hangboarding because that's something, you know, similarly for a long time, everyone was saying like, pack your shoulders, like pull your scapula down and back if you're hanging on a hangboard. And I think recently maybe Lattice has been talking about this, but it's kind of similarly, like they're kind of coming back to a more neutral position or just don't try too hard to pull your scapula down and back and your shoulders. What are your thoughts on the shoulder position for hangboarding? Yeah, first of all, everything's case by case basis, right? Depending on how somebody presents. But what I can say, if someone has stiff shoulders, meaning like, oh, it's a little stiff to get that like top range of motion, right? If you like flatten your back against the wall and you try to reach your arm all the way up overhead and it's a little hard to get that top range, you should not be over-engaging your shoulders when you hang because what happens is your chest comes forward and now you're biasing your biceps muscle, your pectoralis muscle, and the muscles in the front of your body instead of the ones in the back of your body uh, when you're hanging. So that would be like a group, I would say, if you have stiff shoulders, it's actually kind of nice to hangboard disengaged because you're killing two birds with one stone. You're loosening your shoulders and training your fingers. Um, but with the camp that has hypermobile shoulders, they're very loose in someone that can kind of easily like clasp both hands, you know, one hand over their head and the other behind their back mm. and they can touch their fingers easily or they're multiple degrees of motion in their shoulder. Those are the ones that they say gently engage when you're on the hangboard because gently you may engage, need, okay. yeah, you may need that added stability because you don't want to be tugging that shoulder out of its socket. And so it's really, in the end, it comes down to a case-by-case basis. But if you were to say something across the board for everyone, I would say the majority of climbers I see are over-engaging when they hang. And that can actually be a bad thing. Um, Gotcha. Cool. Okay. Um, Man, let's dive into this list. So you and I, in preparation for this, we sent some emails back and forth. And when you first reached out to me, you sent me a bullet list. It was like, here's all the things that I, you know, am interested in that might be fun to talk about. 
And I just picked a few of those that really popped out at me. And let's just jump right into the first one. Uh, you, you mentioned that you've really seen climbing evolve and the common injuries that come with climbers evolve a lot and change in the last five years or so. You know, as styles of climbing are different, as training is different, you're seeing people come into you, your office with, with different injuries. Um, I'd love to hear you elaborate on that. Like what was, what were some of the most common things you would see five years ago and what has changed? Yeah. And I think you could split it into maybe how has climbing changed and what has that done to, you know, the different injuries in the body. So if I were to flip that back, like, I mean, you've been, you know, you've been climbing for a while. Like what have you noticed in the past, let's say five, six years, maybe 10 years max, but let's say five, six years, what have you noticed like in the climbing community that whether it's philosophies, whether it's style of routes, whether it's training, like what have you noticed has been like shifts or changes? Well, I mean, a huge emphasis on strength training on like max, you know, max recruitment, strength training, things like that. Of course, climbing's more dynamic now than it's ever been, especially in the gyms, the run and jumps and stuff like that. Yeah, probably more high intensity work for most people doing, you know, more hangboarding and more time on the campus board, the moon boards, things along those lines. Yeah, I mean, I think the what you've highlighted, one, the style of climbing or the routes or the indoor setting and all, you know, all that things are much more dynamic and they're the physiques of climbers. If you look at someone who started climbing, you know, they've been climbing for 30, 40 years and someone who you know, they started young the past couple of years and are growing and developing. The physiques are totally different, right? Um, so the style of climbing and the routes, I would almost say they're more three-dimensional and dynamic in nature would maybe be a kind of gross statement, you know, kind of a global statement. Yeah. And what that's really changed is the percentage of finger injuries have been rather consistent. Those are the most common injuries a climber will have. You know, over 40% of the injuries in climbing are, are in the fingers. But the thing that's changed a lot are the shoulders, which has been over a 400% increase in shoulder injuries because of the dynamic nature and all the different changing positions that involves and lower body injuries. Like, you know, in my, in my book, I didn't even include lower body you know, in the book, because I didn't think it was such a big deal. And then now, you know, if you look on like Amazon, like mainly the only negative comments are people saying, what the hell? Where's the, you know, where's the knee injuries? Where's the ankle injuries? You know, those types of things. And that's becoming more and more prevalent um, with, you know, knee, hip, ankle and uh, climbing itself because of the the nature of the routes. Um, so, so I think that's one thing that's been, you know, quite different. And then climbing has a huge training culture. There is no question that climbing like is associated with training, especially climbers are trying to push it. I mean, Stephen, do you, you know, on your history, do you mostly climb or do you also train? Like where, where do you come from on that? And has that changed, you know, over, over time? Yeah, it's changed. It's kind of done a bell curve. Like my first five, six, seven years, lots of climbing, hardly any training. Um, aside from, I don't know, like doing an ab circuit at the end and trying to get really tired, <laughs> yeah. you know, before I knew better. Uh, and then I swung way the other way, did tons of training to the exclusion of probably too much climbing. Um, 
several years of that. And now I'm kind of come back and now I spend most of my time climbing on rock and I try to strategically supplement with things that will balance me out. So like here in Waco, for instance, I'm climbing three days a week, bouldering, it's high intensity. It's, it's enough pulling and fingers to probably get me stronger in those ways. And I just do a little bit of like overhead pressing, um, some scapular, scapular work and, um, trying to balance out the forearms by doing like the top of the wrist. So like a reverse wrist mm -hmm. curl sort of motion, just a few things to hopefully keep things balanced and keep things happy. But, um, yeah. And then, and then maybe I have like one season per year these days for the last few years where I spend like six weeks or two months like training and doing more weightlifting and things like that. Kind of an off season. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think the most challenging thing and the thing that's been changing a lot, almost, I wouldn't say almost every, but the majority of climbers that I see are trying to balance training and climbing mm. and figuring out how to do that. Right. And there is no right or wrong answer. I mean, you have some of the top climbers in the world that mostly only climb and you have some of the top climbers in the world that mostly only train and then they go in, you know, they go in red point or send. So, totally. yeah. so it's, it's interesting. There's like these, these kind of different camps and I think how you're doing it is where things will settle. But I, I do feel like there's a very heavy training culture and climbing and the injuries that I see, a lot of them are from training over training or putting the emphasis on training versus movement patterns on the wall. Um, so, so that's kind of, it's been an interesting arc and trajectory because I used to spend a lot of time, you know, figuring out climbing movement patterns, adjusting this, et cetera. And now a lot of it's changing programming and figuring out how to, you know, de-emphasize things that are over fatiguing climbers for the injuries that they're sustaining because they just did a hangboard session before they tried to red point something. Mm. Right. So yeah, let's dive into the most common things that you see. I'd love to just see or to hear some examples of what you just touched on. Like, what are you, what are you trying to get climbers to do less and why? You know, what injuries are they coming in with that you think are preventable? Well, I mean, you know, most, a lot of the injuries that I see actually are shoulder. Um, because for most, I see shoulder and fingers are the two kind of heavy ones. And then let's sprinkle in the elbow. Um, but, uh, but for most climbers, the finger injuries, there are a lot of protocols out there, right? You can look online, you can find kind of self rehab protocols and they're rather straightforward. Now, obviously it's helpful if you have a pulley injury to get an ultrasound, you know, go into a clinician with point of care, figure out whether it's a grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, be able to judge that and then go on a protocol, you know, based on that grade. Um, but you know, not everyone has that access or that ability. So there's some, you know, but there are some online resources. There are some ones that you can use clinical grading. I mean, uh, Carrie Cooper came out with a paper where you can grade the severity of climbing injuries, uh, and pulley injuries from mild, moderate, severe through just clinical testing. But either way, uh, the pulley injuries are very common, um, that I see, but the shoulder is actually the most common of all the body regions. And that is by far the most complicated uh, of, of injuries. Um, elbows, elbows are second most complicated in the upper body because it's rarely the elbow itself. And we could dive a little bit deeper into that. A lot of people with tendinopathy, 
they're focusing on the tendinopathy versus tracing the causative factors that are usually at the wrist or the shoulder itself. But um, but I'd say, yeah, shoulder, elbow, and fingers are the regions that I'll see typically. And I don't know, I can jump into some pearls or advice or thoughts or anything on any of those, but you can kind of ask away. But I'd say that, that those are probably the most common that I'd see on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, this is amazing because I, I have like three bullet points right in front of me. And one of them is most common injuries. The second one is how to prevent them. And then I have knees, shoulders, fingers. Um, so, yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, let's definitely cover shoulders, fingers, elbows. I guess I should have added that to my own list. Let's do knees too. Let's and and then, yeah, too. I'm curious about knees. And this is, of course, like always my curiosity is you know, stems from, uh, it's always self-serving. Like I just tweaked my knee the other day and I'm like, I was going to hmm. ask, I was going to say, did you have a knee injury? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's luckily it's minor, but it was kind of a classic thing. Like I tried to do a, you know, kind of a scrunchy, weird heel hook where you're, you're putting a lot of lateral torque on your knee. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that, that's, those are the common ones. Like it's, we, we can do so many things to keep our bodies healthy and to try to be smart and build a robust structure. But in climbing, there's no avoiding weird tweaky holds. So that's going to, you know, that's going to affect the fingers and aggravate the fingers and put us at risk there. Same with shoulders, like weird tweaky shoulder positions. They're just, yep. to some extent, they're unavoidable. And then the other one that was in my mind is weird knee stuff, like weird heel hooks or drop knees that are just, very strange multi-dimensional torque that the knee is not really built for. So, um, and then the elbows I think are a really good one too, because I've definitely, and, and I hear from so many people that just have these like epic multi-year struggles with tendinopathy, you know, golfers yeah, and elbow. elbows. Elbows, I would say of those different regions are some of the most misdiagnosed when I see someone mm. come in. Like everyone's like, oh, I have tendinopathy. Everyone has elbow tendinopathy. And I'm like, you move your head and your elbow tendinopathy changes. It gets worse and gets better. I don't think that's elbow tendinopathy. <laughs> so it's uh so anyway, yeah. So there's let's let's dive into which one do you want to start with? I mean we could do we could go with your knee since that's something that's sure. going on right now. Let's start with the knees. All right. So yeah, so basically you're talking about wh- which part of the knee is it that, that's bothering? Um, I believe it's either the meniscus or the LCL or some combination it's there. On the outside. Yeah, it's on the outside. <clears throat> it's that band of uh, you can feel like the band of ligament on the outside of your knee. Yeah. And I heard like a, you know, like a crunchy audible thing <laughs> when it happened. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it's not that bad. My knees, it feels very slightly wobbly, um, but mostly stable. I don't think I did anything serious to it. It was just really sore and stiff the next day. And, you know, maybe we're, we're like a week out. It's been a week and it's, 80%, something along those yeah. lines. Like most moves don't, I don't feel a thing. <clears throat> I just feel like I have to be careful with heel hooks. Um, but I guess I'm, I think I'm most interested, not necessarily in like, because I don't know if the rehab's terribly complicated. It seems like as long as I don't do something stupid, this thing should heal on its own. Um, obviously, I'd love to get your thoughts, but I'm more interested in prevention, you know? Like yeah. if if you're going into a project where you have a weird drop knee or a weird heel hook or something like that. Um, yeah. What, what do we do? Like, how can we either warm up acutely for that session or strengthen our knees over the long term to just make, just to build more robust knees for weird moves like that? 
Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing, so, you know, the structures, let's talk about kind of this recent injury and break it down. I mean, the structures on the outside, you have your IT band, right? That's that thick band that's on the outside of the leg that goes into a tendon that goes right across that area. You have your LCL, which is a deep ligament in the knee that stabilizes the knee. You have the outside hamstring muscle. So the muscle on the outside, that's called biceps femoris. That's like a little bit on the, like the back, you know, outside of the knee, um, it, you know, kind of going right through that area. And then you have the meniscus that kind of sits like right in between. So those are like the structures that can be affected. And usually the kind of crunching or that snap or that sensation that you feel, it's normally because you're in a suboptimal position, as you talked about. Your hip is flexed forward, it's like rotated, and then you're asking your muscles to contract, you know, in that kind of challenging position. So one thing that comes to mind typically for prevention is flexibility uh, into almost as you think like that pigeon position would be, Mm. you know, on the ground, like that yoga pigeon position would be like the baseline way to start getting comfortable with the knee coming up into that, you know, kind of passive position of what you would do the heel hook in. And as a warm up, I'll typically have climbers go into a pigeon position, put their hand on their heel and then push down into their hand, almost like you're tightening your hamstring into your uh, almost like you're doing a heel hook, but in a pigeon position. I don't know if that makes sense, but okay. you like, so you're in a pigeon position, your right knee is forward, your right heel is kind of dangling in front of you and you just push on that right heel mm. with your left hand um, to kind of like, kind of activate that muscle a little bit. And um, you're, you're pulling down with your heel into your hand. So like yeah. engage, engaging your hamstring. Exactly. So you're stretching out your glute muscle. You're getting that hip in the right position. You're just subtly turning on your hamstring muscle to kind of prepare it, you know, get it ready for that position. Um, And then a lot of what I train from that is using, uh, they're called furniture sliders, uh, but, um, or paper plates or socks and taking actually climbers into uh, some positions where they're almost doing like a, like a lunge with one leg across their body and they're on this like little sliding device so they can engage their hamstring at the same time. And now you're functionally using, uh, you know, one of the muscles um, that you're waking up. And then the kind of third progression, you just take a Swiss ball or a exercise ball and you rotate your knees outward. You bridge your hips up into the air. Your heels are on the ball and you do just the you know, a, a isometric heel hook to try and turn on those those muscles. So I, I usually recommend to do something that involves isolated strength, which is, you know, on a Swiss ball, something that involves some dynamic movement, which is that kind of weird lunge with those sliders, and something that involves flexibility, which would be getting that hip up into that position and just training the knee to be a little bit more resilient in those different positions. How might someone integrate these things into their week? Yeah, I mean, the stretching's easy because, you know, stretching, you don't need down days or time to recover. So it's something kind of you can weekly easily do to to work on flexibility. Um, But any strength work, you know, that you're trying to do, I really like climbers to take it easy on those things. And, you know, three times a week, right? 
is is kind of where we're at with with some of the strength work and, and muscle facilitation so it doesn't impede some of your goals with climbing mm. so that'd be something i'd say three days a week do it on your off days do it at a lower intensity or volume if it's for preventative training okay cool i want to get um, slightly more in detailed descriptions of the second and the third one. So I, th- I actually know exactly what these furniture sliders are. I think Tim Ferriss <laughs> is a fan of them for his gymnastics stuff that he does. But basically like anything that you can put on a carpet that's slippery. And then you would yeah. put, um, for that lunge position, you would put your forward foot on the slippery thing and just do an active lunge where I guess you have to use your hamstring to control it so that you don't slip too far. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, you have to almost like co-contract your hamstring so that doesn't slide outwards in front of you as you're taking your other leg back. Okay, got it. Okay. Um, So I'm sorry, which foot has the slider? Uh, The front one. So you're taking like your, your right, let's say your right foot, right? It's on a slider. And then you're reaching your left foot kind of out and back towards your right side as you're kind of going into a curtsy lunge. And I maybe I could send, I don't know if that helps, but I can send some oh, yeah. uh, links. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I'll, I'll put stuff in the show notes for people that want to try these things. And then, um, yeah. And then the, the ball, can you describe that one again? So you're lying on your back and you take, you're like an exercise ball, like a giant kind of Swiss ball or exercise ball. And you put those under your heels or you put the ball under your heels. And so your legs are straight, the ball is under your heels, you're lying down on the ground and you lift your butt up or your bottom up. So you're like, your body's like a plank, right? Okay. And then you start with both legs and you just curl that ball, curl that ball into your buttock with your heels. And then you start doing it with one leg and that really builds up hamstring strength for heel hooks. If you Mm. can do a single leg, resistance uh, or a Swiss ball curl um, and do, you know, eight to 10 of those, those make your hamstrings pretty resilient. That sounds, yeah, it sounds hard. <laughs> it sounds really yeah. hard. <laughs> and you know, the irony, like remember I was telling you, I had those injuries in track and field. Well, that was like all I was doing, like was doing like these ball <laughs> curls, like building that position. So you would think I'd be good at heel hooking, but no, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, My issue with heel hooking is actually flexibility, which a lot of oh. people listening, the challenge, you can have very strong hamstring muscles, but the challenge is being able to use that strength in varied rotated positions. Mm. And so hip flexibility plays a large role in that. Okay. Got it. Um, what about for drop knees? Um, is there anything we can do to, maybe it's the pigeon thing, Maybe that's maybe that covers it, but anything else to make our knees more bomb-proof for weird, torquey, drop-knee positions? Yeah, I mean, one thing is, so with the drop-knee, I guess I'll say two things. When you're dropping your knee down, you're controlling the knee bend with your quadricep muscle. So that micro-adjustment of slowly letting your knee flex, slowly letting that heel come towards your buttock, is your quadricep strength being able to like micro adjust, right? And so uh, being able to do that, what that is, is eccentric quadricep strength. That concentric would be like straightening your knee, eccentric would be slowly letting your knee bend, right? Um, So doing something very simple, like if you were to think like, 
tall kneeling. So you're like uh, kneeling on the ground and your bottom's in the air, like your hips are stacked over your knees. Can you imagine that? So yeah, you're like, so you're on your knees, but your whole torso and thighs are vertical. 100%, yeah, okay. like that. And if you bring your hands in front of you just to offset center mass and then slowly control your bottom touching or going uh. down towards your knee, that would be something that would be considered an eccentric strength exercise. It's actually kind of hard to do. And it's kind of harder than do that with load. If you put a dumbbell in front of you or mm. some weight in front of you, and that would be like a double limb exercise that controls maximal kind of flexion of the knee. Um, another thing that you could do, I won't suggest this with heavy weights, but if you go on your tiptoes, like you kind of go all the way up on your tiptoes, and then you keep your toes, uh, your heel lifted, and you slowly bring your bottom towards your heels. So you slowly let your body lower down. Does that make sense? You're mm -hmm. like on your tiptoes, your, your heels are off the ground, and then your whole body lowers down to a squat, except your bottom touches your heel. That's another example of an eccentric quadriceps exercise that could potentially allow you to micro adjust that ability to, to drop your knee. So you're in that example, you're staying on your tiptoes the whole time and bending at mm -hmm. the knees. Okay, got it. Yeah, because if you're thinking about drop knee, you're pivoting off of your, your forefoot, right? You're right. locking into the wall and you're pivoting. So that mirrors that almost position or, or kind of style of that eccentric work while you're on your tiptoes. Um, the other part about a drop knee, it involves a lot of what's called internal rotation. So your thigh muscle moves inward as your foot or leg moves outward. And internal rotation is a really interesting one. A lot of climbers actually lack it. So climbers that are having difficult, this is usually with higher drop knees. So shorter climbers trying to do like a higher drop knee when they rotate down, they may feel a block and they're not able to fully rotate their thigh. And so then they will then rotate their hip um, kind of around. And so for that, if you lie down on your back, and you bring your knee to the level of your hip. So you're almost lying down on your back and your knees are flexed, um, almost like a tabletop position. I don't know if that's, if I'm describing that well, but can you kind of imagine that? You're like lying down and your knee is like flexed up to the level of your hip. Okay, I think so. Um, you put a yoga block between your knees and then you rotate your legs outwards. So your feet are moving outwards as your knees are pressing inwards. It's called internal okay. rotation. And it's a really weird one, but that's a strengthening exercise for very high drop knees to help improve that internal rotation. Yeah, I can, I can, well, I can like imagine it. I can kind of feel it. I'm imagine, imagining doing it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that is kind of a similar weird torquey thing where you're, yeah, your, your foot is going out, your knees kind of dropping in. Yeah. Interesting. So do, the, do you have videos yeah, of these? So let's do, let me do some videos. I'll, <laughs> should, I, should I do a rap? Like I'll, I'll put to, I'll put together <laughs> some videos and then should I do a rap song as I'm doing it? Yes, please. <laughs> Give us the protocol as you're in, in the form of a rap. That would be amazing. I'll be like, check it out. Here I begin. You put your legs out and your knees go in or something like that. <laughs> oh man. All right. <laughs> we should move on from the rap stuff. <laughs> uh, okay. So 
Anything else on knees? Um, this is amazing. I'm this is this is really valuable. Yeah, I mean it's a little hard to describe, but I think that if we have a couple of videos, people can like listen along, maybe click the video, check it out, and be like, oh, I see that. That looks weird. I've never tried that. Maybe it can help with my drop knee. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. And are the well, I guess I'll ask this. Are these like different progressions or are these just like different ideas? You can try all of them within a session and just if if someone you know, feels like they're vulnerable to this or they've never done this before. Maybe they just do all of these a few times a week. Um, you know, for how long? G- give us some of those details to yeah. help program this would, stuff. Yeah, and I first would say these are different ideas, meaning if someone comes in to my clinic and they say, I'm having difficulty with drop knees or I'm having pain with drop knees or I want to prevent pain with drop knees, etc. This is the process I go through. I assess their eccentric strength of their quads. If it's weak, they get that first exercise I said, right? Their ability to slowly lower down. Um, and trust me, you can make that exercise much, much harder, right? But that's just the concept. Um, and I check their hip internal rotation. If they have plenty of internal rotation, they don't get that second exercise. They don't get that weird yoga block squeeze, feet rotate out, knees go in one. They only get the first one, right? And so a lot of this is customized for the individual. But if someone's listening, and they try these exercises out and they're like, oh, wow, this is something I've never done. And it's it's new to my body. And it seems like it's something I'm not very good at. Yeah, it's it's definitely something with any of these. They're very low load, right? If you're doing a drop knee, most of your quad control is just to control the position of the drop. The rest is just you're torquing the joint into an end range. And so these are things that can be done. I usually recommend three times a week, but if someone wants to do them each day, they can do them at a low load each day mm. to just habituate to the movement. Awesome. Okay. Um, I'm going to throw in a question from a listener. This isn't specific to knees or drop knees or anything like that, but I think it's, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I think it's a really good question and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because it was quite long, but uh, this is a question I got from Tyler and Tyler wanted to get your thoughts on traditional strength training. Um, you know, more specifically doing compound lifts like deadlift, uh, bench press, shoulder press, maybe for the knees, like a squat, a bar, you know, back barbell squat, whatever, high intensity, low volume for injury prevention versus some of these more very targeted, very specific things like you're talking about, like these lower intensity, higher volume exercises, like the examples you've been giving. Um, what are your thoughts? Can we get the same resiliency from a compound lift, like a squat in this instance, or yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's very heavy camps on each philosophy. You have your camps that say, go hard, go heavy, compound lifts. You got, there's no prehab. You got to strengthen, strengthen, heavy lifts, etc. You also have the other camp, stay off the heavy lifts, you know, use the exercise resistance bands, finesse, use fine motor control, et cetera, right? So there's really two heavy camps on on each of these. And with anything, you need to start reading between the lines and understanding you likely need a combination of both, right? Mm. You look at Olympic athletes, you know, you look at any Olympic sport and their training routines involve heavy lifting. They're building the strength and the capacity of the muscles to, you know, withstand or endure stress. Uh, You also look at those teams and they have 
band exercises they're doing. Take USA Gymnastics, for example, right? All those athletes, I think that's a sport that we can maybe equate to some of the movements in climbing. And a lot of those athletes, they're in the weight room. They're doing all their weight work, but they're also doing their resistance band work, their fine-tuned motor control and, and muscle work as well. And they're doing that actually before they get on the rings, before they get on the pommel, et cetera. Um, so I caution anyone that's listening, if someone's preaching one camp and preaching that camp very heavily, I always say, take a step back and you need to understand that there's a whole picture. And I see plenty of climbers on a one-on-one basis that I say, yes, go that direction. We need to add in some heavier lifting, even add in some Olympic lifting because we need to get some plyometric ability. And then I see plenty of climbers. I'm like, that's all you're doing. We need to build in some stabilizing muscles mm-hmm. and we need to integrate some some smaller muscle groups. So so yeah, I, I, my my thoughts on that is is that you need a combination of both. And it's, it's very helpful to, to have both of those. And I've worked with... Let's take, you know, V, you know, V15 climber, right? That can really, you know, you know, has really good ability to compound lift, do all these different strength exercises. And I put them in a muscle test position for the rotator cuff in just a weird, like a really challenging little tricky position for the rotator cuff that they may even encounter when they're climbing. I test the strength of the rotator cuff. And what I visually see, the pec muscle jumps out. The lat muscle jumps out. The deltoid muscle jumps out. All of these large muscle groups become the primary muscles that work. And when I have them relax those muscles, the rotator cuff immediately falls down and is weak. So mm. we have a our body has a ability to compensate. And by doing heavy lifts, yes, you are stabilizing and strengthening all those little muscles. But at the same time, you are potentially over recruiting some of the larger muscles and it's nice to have a balance. Got it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, there's the classic example, you know, tying this back to knees, like there's always the the middle-aged dude who was a jock and like a stud in high school, you know, they stopped playing their sport. They stopped running and moving and like, you know, running around in different directions and stuff. They train in the weight room three days a week after work. They get really strong at squats, which is just one very specific directional movement. And then they go blow out their knee playing softball and like running around the bases, you know? Um, Yeah. And I mean, I think thankfully with climbing, there's so much variety within the sport that I think most climbers are probably pretty well off with a lot of this stuff. But, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to, to prepare yourself for something like a weird unique drop knee, you know, there's not progressions for a lot of these movements either. So yeah, these ideas that you're throwing out there are really helpful. Yeah. And I I think especially for the less talked about injuries, like for the knees, there are so many things that climbers are not doing for their knees that would step up their game just because it's not as commonly talked about, right? Mm. If you look at the shoulder, you could look online and find tons of different ways to strengthen the shoulder in multiple positions. That's rather well known, right, with climbers. There's a lot of different varieties. If if a climber wants to train their stabilizing muscles and they don't like resistance bands, just use rings, right? Mm. There's plenty of ring exercises that does the same thing. And so there's a lot of directions for that. But I think for, yeah, for ankles, for knees, for hips, we're not there yet with, uh, with having the volume of information available. Mm-hmm. Now, give us three, four years, I think that may change and there'll be an oversaturation. But for now, there's not not too much volume. 
Where should we go next? Should we talk about shoulders? Sure. Yeah, I love shoulders. That's <laughs> shoulders, one of my favorite parts of the body to treat and the most complicated, in my opinion. What are some of the most common climber shoulder injuries that you see these days? All right. So the first thing to mention, if there's a finger injury or an elbow injury, I'm very comfortable giving a diagnosis based on a clinical exam saying this is tendinopathy, this is a nerve entrapment, this is a pulley sprain, you know, and maybe using imaging to support that. For the shoulder, whether the terms are impingement, subacromial pain syndrome, labral tear, rotator cuff tear, whatever it is, in the scientific community, there is not a consensus that if a structure is injured, it is, gener- is what's generating the pain. Um, so, so I first want to say for the shoulder, like even in my protocols, I have diagnoses. Those are just labels. And what I base the shoulder on is more the movements that generate pain and the ways that a climber can alter their movement to get rid of pain. And what Mm. that is called is a symptom modification procedure, some way that they can change how they move and their symptoms go away or go down. And that is very common with climbers who come in with any one of those diagnoses, I say, it's usually possible to find something that changes or gets rid of their pain by changing their movement. And that's where the fun is. And it's very hard to do, but that's where the fun is. (laughs) Um, So for example, a climber has shoulder pain and whatever, let's say it's impingements of a chromial pain syndrome, whatever terminology you have, they have pain in the front of their shoulder. They have that when they are bringing their arm overhead and like reaching, let's say they're a shorter climber and they're reaching for like an end range, uh, you know, kind of like a hold that's like a little bit higher above their head. So they say, oh, I have my pain with that. So Stephen, if you were to do something, you're like, all right, they have, you're, you're, you're now in front of them. You're their clinician. They say, oh, I have my pain with that. And you have their bringing their arm overhead what would you do to try and get rid of their pain? Like press somewhere, push somewhere, just make something up. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from telling them to stop doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, they're projecting. They got to do this. You know, they got to do this route. (laughs) What what, what would you tell them? Oh man. Um, I guess I would have them explore different levels of engagement while trying to do that same motion. Okay. Yeah. So maybe engage different muscles at, at, at different levels. So that's one thing you can try. Another thing I'll typically do, they have pain at the top range. I'll actually tell them, shrug your shoulder up towards your ear. Mm. And that sometimes will get rid of the pain 100%. And when that happens, then it's like, huh, why did that happen? And then we go down the route, which are the muscles that are tight, that are keeping the shoulder blade locked down which are the ones that are weak, that are not allowing it to elevate or upwardly rotate. And then I go down that clinical path. Now, if they bring their arm up over their head, they have that pain, I have them elevate their shoulder. They say, ah, that doesn't change at all. Totally feels the same. I'm like, oh, all right, well, let me try something else. So they bring their arm up over their head and I press the front of their shoulder backwards as I stabilize their scapula. So you almost imagine my hand is on their back and my, my other hand is on the front of their shoulder. I'm almost like compressing their shoulder together. That gets rid of their pain. In my mind, I'm like, huh, which direction do we now go? And so that's the really fun part with shoulders is 
if something is mechanical, if you can change the pain, you can likely figure out the why. And then I pull up climbing footage and I say, oh, interesting. When you're reaching for that hold, it looks like you're keeping your shoulder too low. Maybe next time allow it to elevate up a little bit. Or I see when you're reaching for something, your elbow goes behind your torso. Maybe let's change that by, you know, X, Y, Z. So that's why I love shoulders so much because it is nonstop. The brain is working on overspeed to just try and mechanically diagnose them. Mm. This this might be a good time for this question because, you know, hearing you describe this, I'm like, okay, so if I injure my shoulder, I'm going to have to contact Jared because this sounds really complicated <laughs> and I don't trust a non-climber physician to fix me necessarily. Uh, I'm sure there's, a, you know, a bunch of great ones out there, but if someone has a shoulder injury, they have no idea what specifically is wrong with their shoulder. Do you have any guidance for people on seeking out a medical provider, clinician, just how to get started with yeah. diagnosis before they can move into treatment? Yeah. I mean, it used to be even a couple of years ago, there was not that many people to go to, right? There was a lot of great physical therapists. There were not a lot of great physical therapists that were climbers. That has completely changed. There are so many people right now that you know, and I could speak maybe towards what to look for in a physical therapist because, you know, that's my profession. I could speak a little bit more towards it. Um, but yeah, there are so many options right now to, to find PTs. And if someone can't find someone, they can also shoot me an email. And I can I have a huge directory of PTs all over the world as well as the, you know, the country. And if you want someone in your area, just shoot me an email and I can I can send you, you know, some information on that. Um, but the things that are important, first of all, you don't need any of the, a physical therapist does not need any or all these credentials to be good at what they do. I want to preface that. But this allows you as a climber to know that it, they're at least hitting a certain standard uh, or a certain kind of level if they have some or all of these. Is that is that a fair assessment as like before I go into them? Yeah, sure. So like you, yeah, I get that. So like you can you can see someone that doesn't have any of them and they can be the most amazing clinician and fix you. Um, but I'll go through the list and these are the things that, in my opinion, are important to have at least one or two of them in a, in a, a physical therapist that you're looking for if you have an injury. Um, and you know, one of them, uh, you know, for physical therapy, the education has evolved over time. So a physical therapy who has a doctorate in physical therapy, I would say would be something that would be uh, helpful to see because they've, you know, gone through that extra year of training, um, for, uh, you know, if they're seeing a physical therapist, someone who's a climber, in my opinion is super important they need to be able to understand the climbing movement, the, you know, the stresses that it puts on the shoulder. So I think those two criteria are helpful. Uh, going deeper into it, if a, a PT has the OCS or a, a, or a SCS after their name, that means that they did an advanced certification that shows that they're a board specialty. Um, so an OCS or an SCS would be a, a board specialized physical therapist. So you'd want to see one of those. Um, someone who went through a residency, you can ask them if they've done an additional one year of training through residency, about one to 3% of physical therapists do that. So it's a smaller number, but you can ask if they residency train. 
And you can ask them if they're fellowship trained. That's an additional year, one more year. And one to 3% of residency trained therapists go through a fellowship. So it's smaller numbers, but you can ask them if they're fellowship trained. And I think the other thing is you can ask if they teach, if they're affiliated with the university, because usually they'll be kind of up to speed on some of the more recent literature and they're they're teaching their profession. So they've kind of moved up through the field. So you don't need a, a physical therapist to have any or all of those. But those are maybe some helpful criteria to ask to kind of sift through uh, if someone is looking for somebody. If someone is injured and trying to diagnose their injury, would you recommend them going to a physical therapist first before going to their regular doctor about that injury? Totally depends on your state. So, for example, I'm in California. California is direct access. You can go straight to a physical therapist and it kind of skips a step to make it so you're, you know, you typically will go into the physician. They'll say, oh, looks like your shoulder's injured, a general practitioner. Uh, here's a script, go see a physical therapist, right? And so you're you're kind of bypassing a step. Uh, that depends on your state and your, your state laws. Um, so, you know, whoever's listening may want to check in with their state on that. Got it. Okay. Okay. Let's come back to the shoulder. I would love to ask you this, like given the complexity, the number of things that could be um, happening in the shoulder and, and how it could be presenting for each individual. Are there any exercises that every climber should be doing? So before for, for I answer the shoulder that que- yeah, yeah, yeah. Before yeah. I answer that question, as you can tell, I, I you know, I lean towards specificity. So, yeah. so, but it's specificity. The goal is, can you have things be specific for the general population of climbers without having them have to see somebody, right? That's the, that's the goal. Um, and so what I'd recommend actually on my webpage, I have these shoulder protocols completely free to like go on the webpage and like peruse around them. But if you look at the other, if you look at the top of them, there's like a rotator cuff one, a shoulder, etc. There's these special tests. And these are the exact tests. If you were to go in to see a physical therapist that they would do, on your shoulder to make a determination of what's going on. And so I recommend climbers, like you can learn what's going on by just going online, doing these tests and say, ooh, those three hurt. Ah, it looks like I probably fit into this category. And based on that category, you should be doing these types of exercises, right? Mm. And so before we go global, uh, I'll just say that climbers can also not see anyone and be very specific and just try a series of tests and measures. They're kind of these tests that you put your arm in a few different positions and see if it's uncomfortable. And if certain positions are uncomfortable, it means you're more in this one category, right? Um, and just to clarify, this is for rehab, right? This is someone who's already injured. This is injured. for rehab. This okay. is how my shoulder hurts and you know I, I wanna go in this direction. Got it. Now for, per, and so that's a very specific way that you could do that or you see someone local. Now for prevention, I think that's where you're jumping in right now, is like, all right, what, what, what's the pearls? What, what are the exercises if, if we were to do something for, to prevent shoulder injuries as best we can? Like what are the, the best examples? Um, and there's a recent study that came out up until several months ago, anything someone said about injury prevention with climbing would not be accurate because there was not research to support it. Right. So it would just it would just be I don't know if it'd not be accurate, but it would not be research validated. Uh, so there was recent recently a research article that came out that actually looked at injury prevention and rock climbing. 
and they looked at an entire year of climbers and they split them into two groups, a control group and a group that went through some specific exercises. And these exercises involved some ring exercises. So some exercises of stabilizing the shoulders on the rings. It involved some exercises that involved eccentrics, so strengthening the forearm as well into eccentrics. And then a couple different stabilization exercises hanging from a bar uh, you know, during a pull-up position. So that article was interesting, and it was a significant decrease in, in injuries that they had with climbers per, or performing these kind of shoulder-specific. This is all on the shoulder uh, exercises. So I can put a link uh, to the title of the article and that information um, you know, for your show notes as well. Um, but now we finally have a little bit of research that shows that stabilization exercises and ones that strengthen um, basically some of the shoulder girdle musculature can prevent injuries in rock climbers. Mm. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. I'll be sure to link to that for sure. What about in your own clinical practice or things that have helped you in your own climbing? I mean, when you say rings, I'm imagining I's, Y's, and T's. Those are really common. Those are like probably the most common climbing exercises that I've never really done. (laughs) I, I don't know why. I guess I've... Um, I guess I've, yeah, I feel kind of lucky. I have, I think pretty, uh, you know, knock on wood, pretty bomb proof shoulders. I've done a lot of pressing. Like I do a lot of kettlebell overhead press, which I think because there's a stabilization element in the kettlebell, because the offset nature of the weight there, I think that's a really good one. I've done a lot of, um, Turkish getups as well, which is, which is similar, but, um, Anyway, I'm I'm derailing this whole thing. Yeah, what have you seen help your clients or yourself just as far as like bomb-proofing shoulders for rock climbing? Yeah, I mean, you're right on with stabilization exercises and especially with boulderers because if you think about bouldering, that's kind of quick contact strength, right? You're kind of throwing, you know, 7 to 10 moves depending on the route, whatever it is, but you're you're looking at more power stabilization. It's more important than, let's say, someone doing a lot of multi-pitch trad climbing. You know, now I'm, I'm thinking, oh, we're focusing on endurance, right? Um, so, so it's a, a different camp. Um, but I guess maybe the go-to exercises, like the ones if I were to kind of go global and say these are, are quite helpful, um, is I like combining things together. So if you think about it, let's say the rings, right? So you have the rings and you have a resistance band. So you take your hands on the rings, your feet uh, kick up onto a chair, and you're almost like hanging with your arms in front of you, your bottoms kind of facing towards the ground, and you're like in a plank, but in this like reverse direction. Can you kind of imagine that okay, or so describing that? Yeah, it's like, a, um, it's like a row exercise. Like you're, you're basically like facing the opposite way of a push-up, so you're holding onto the rings with your arms at a 90 relative to your torso and your feet are on a chair. So your body's uh, parallel to the floor. Am I getting that right? You got it. Yep. Okay. And so then you take a resistance band and you tie it around your wrists in a loop. So the band is almost like trying to pull your wrists together when you're in that same position. Hmm. Can you kind of imagine that? Yeah. And you're handcuffing yourself kind of with a, with a band. Man, you're good at these descriptions. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, exactly, yeah. So you're giving yourself handcuffs with, with this resistance band. So then you press out on the resistance band 
and immediately your rotator cuff turns on in a functional way and it's on. And then you do a row. You basically row your body into the band and something that would have been without that band, quite easy to do for most people, that ability to do that like reverse row. Now it is really, really hard because you're doing the same exact motion in a row. Guess what? That's what we do when we climb, right? We're pulling into the wall and now your rotator cuff is selectively turned on when you're rowing. And now you're turning on those stabilizing muscles. You have an unstable surface such as the rings and you're doing something very climbing specific. And if you want to challenge that, take one foot off the chair. <laughs> and if you want to challenge that, bend your knee. And now you've got that heel hook that we talked about, right? That, that now you're engaging your hamstring, right? So, so those are the types of exercises that I typically gravitate towards is if you do them well, and if you do them correctly, you basically did four exercises and you can focus on that rather than taking a resistance band and doing your rotator cuff in isolation. And then maybe, you know, some heavy weights and rowing, right? This is something mm. that combines everything together. I love that. Yeah. That makes me want to try this one. I want to ask this because <laughs> I know that there's someone listening to this that's going to try to go over Stoker and, you know, like prove how much of a stud they are and put like a 45 weight, you know, <laughs> pound plate on their chest while they're doing these. Um, how hard should these be? And how might you guide someone in programming? Like, I'm assuming you wouldn't want to go to failure. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on intensity and reps and sets and things along those lines? So first of all, how hard are they? To do it correctly, they're extremely hard because what's going to happen, the row part is not hard. Most climbers can row with their body weight, right? That's something that's likely a given fact. The hard part is keeping your wrists stacked at the same level as your elbow and your wrists are going to want to come inward, right? So the movement mechanics are the challenging part. Now, once the movement mechanics are down, doing about 10 repetitions is extremely fatiguing. Like it's very hard to do this properly, you know, after 10 repetitions. And once you get to 10 repetitions and you could do this, you know, without loading or adding weight, then you can start adding or loading any type of you know volume once the or sorry any type of weight once the mechanics are down and that really turns into a strength like imagine you're doing a compound lift well this is something you probably if you put a 40 pound 45 pound weight on your stomach and you have a heavy resistance band this is probably going to be harder to do than you know <laughs> your your compound lifting um so so what i would say for sets and reps um like from a simple standpoint you know, three sets of eight to 10 repetitions. I usually tell climbers, you know, what are you projecting? How many moves is it? Eight move boulder problem, do eight reps. You know, mm. that that makes more sense to me, right? Um, if you're doing something that involves a lot of motor control. But um, but yeah, don't go over stoker, I guess, on uh, on these like cool new, like try this out injury stuff because how you perform it is the most important part. Um, and usually it takes a little bit of motor learning to do it correctly. Mm. That's awesome. Um, what do you call these? Do they have a name? <laughs> I don't know. H handcuff um, handcuff re rows. Resi resistance maybe. band rows. Resistance, resistance band, band rows. rows. Okay. And these are a good book. Uh, Volker Schofel put this out. This is, this is actually how I first learned, learned of them. There's a book called ACT. Uh, and it's a bunch of different exercises for climbers. Um, you know, injury prevention climbers, awesome guy and awesome book as well. 
And I actually was just like flipping through the book and I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I've, I've done a lot of these things. And I was like, whoa, 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 what, what, what's this one? <laughs> and then I just started playing with that exercise and finessing it, tweaking it and changing it. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's, that, it's a great one, but that, that's kind of where I picked it up. So that's another good resource for, for climbers to check out. Awesome. I'll find that book. I'll link to it in the show notes. Let me ask this, um, with that exercise, what is your wrist position? Are your palms facing each other, holding the rings? So this is interesting. So I had a climber in the other day and I had them doing this with their palms facing each other. And it was pretty easy for them to do. I then had them rotate their palms downward, you know, kind of like pronated, like so their palm is like facing towards their feet. And then they did the same row and they were shaking all over the place. <laughs> and I said, oh, this is not good. Because if you think about it, what po- what position is your palm in when you're climbing? Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> pretty common. <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. pretty darn common for your palms to be facing forward when you climb. I mean, maybe if you're crack climbing or if you're, you know, you're slapping an edge or something, but um but so yeah, for these things I, I always have climbers start with their with their palms facing each other because it's a more controlled position. It's a little bit more neutral. But eventually your exercises should look feel, you know, just like climbing. And so that that would be an adjustment to progress to is rotate the palms downward. And would this be in your mind kind of like a one-stop shop exercise for the shoulder? Or are there are, are we missing things? Yeah. So that is a one-stop shop for pulling okay. and turning on the rotator cuff. But pushing is another one that we want to kind of antagonize or, or complement, right? And so doing exercises that involve more of the pushing muscles uh, may be something that can, can supplement, uh, you know, climbers training as well. Okay. And very simply, like, have you done much? I mean, I know you work with kettlebells, like even with weights, right? And resistance. Have you done um, maybe even like simple things such as bench press, push-ups? Like, what, tell me what you've done kind of for pushing muscles. Yeah. Pro- I mean, I'm the type, I've probably erred on the side of too much, you know? I'm like, oh yeah, these are, these are awesome. These are really important. And then I have like a whole program around you know, bench pressing and things. Um, but I also come from a background with more of that. So I probably... Mm-hmm. You know, I I had a, <laughs> I had a period in high school where I was a total meathead because I didn't want to run track anymore and I didn't know what else to do, so I just would go lift weights. And oh, so uh, track track was your thing as well. Previously, I pole vaulted. I pole vaulted for a couple oh, really? of years. Yeah. Oh, pole vaulters are crazy. Well, I wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I jumped yeah. like twelve six maybe was my best. Not not terribly okay. good. Um, but yeah, um, I've done a lot of pressing, bench press. I'm pretty strong at that. I had a uh, finger injury at one point and did a, this is actually awesome. I did a one arm, one leg pushup program, like progressed upwards to that. And by the end nice. of the six weeks, I could do five singles on each arm with a one arm, one leg pushup. Ooh, and that arm. was like, that was actually incredible. Like I had an incredible carryover from that to just anything involving core tension. It just really turned, it really teaches you to turn everything on and you know, it really connects the tip of one toe to your hand, opposite hand. So cross body tension, things like that was really good. But yeah, I mean, it's a staple. I do some sort of uh, either like a decline push up with my feet up on a chair in the van, because that's really easy, or like an overhead kettlebell press pretty much every climbing day in the evenings. 
Nice. Yeah. So some type of push, and that's some that's some dedication to to, to do that, right? To you know to to kind of get that you know oppositional work. The one thing I noticed with pressing, and this is you know any type of whether it's bench press using kettlebell pushups, etc. If you have a climber remove their shirt, or if it's a female climber and they have like a sports bra on or something where you can see their shoulder blades, if you pay keen attention to the shoulder blade position during the top of the pushup, it's going to tell you a lot about the shoulders. Hmm. And oftentimes with climbers, and it depends, this is where you could check out, if you watch their shoulder blades during a pushup, the top position they'll oftentimes wing slightly away from the spine. They'll almost kind of one, usually the injured one, but one may lift away from the spine a little bit. And it's called scapular winging. And you could, maybe someone listening can look up the term scapular winging and in Google images, you'll see plenty of examples. Um, So in pushing exercises, you kind of ask like what clinical pearls I give or what kind of like advice I give, whether it's rings, kettlebells, push up, like whatever it is, the end position of the push, that last part, your arms are already straight. What you want to do is actually push your shoulder blades forward, Mm. almost like you are shrugging your shoulders forward, but your chest stays tall. So you're not rounding your chest or flexing your spine, but you're punching your shoulders forward. And what that actually does is it turns on a very important stabilizer called serratus anterior and it's a muscle that stabilizes the inner border of the shoulder blade and so this is a muscle that regardless of whatever push exercise i give climbers i will typically request that at the end of the motion they punch the shoulder forward to get that bonus scapular muscle and especially if you visually see a little bit of that winging on one side or the other um, so that's a little kind of pearl with those those movements. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite as far as bench press, overhead press? Um, yeah. Any favorites for, or just do one? For pushing stuff? Yeah, for pushing stuff. Just do it. Um, just, do, I, I think, <laughs> just do it. Yeah, just, just do it. <laughs> just it's, do something. Uh, just do something. Like that, that. That's one of the ones where just do something and make sure you get that shrug at the end. Um, I don't really have a bias on it. Um, But what I will say, I have a lot of climbers coming in that say my inner elbow hurts because of compression moves. And every time I do a compression move, oh, I'm getting this inner elbow pain. I get that so many times. And I take a dynamometer, which is something that force tests the strength of a muscle. And I have them press into the dynamometer on each side using their pectoralis muscle. So almost imagine like they're doing like they're hugging like maybe like a larger person and they're like trying to like rotate around them or they're doing almost like imagine like a peck fly. You can imagine mm. like that position. I test the strength of their peck muscle in its ability to bring the arm across the body. And oftentimes I notice a weakness in the pec's muscle ability to do that on the affected elbow, especially inside elbow pain. Okay. And if you think about it, like... If climbers are only training their chest by pushing and the stuff that we talked about, like, you know, the bench press, all those types of things, but they're doing a lot of compression moves and they're getting inner elbow pain, they better find some way to train that same muscle into that fly position, that almost like um, compression position. Hmm. And so I'll oftentimes I'll say, whatever you want to do to press, 
but we need to add in one other exercise and that would be something to strengthen your chest into that compression uh, so we can clear up your elbow pain. Okay. So like a ring fly or a dumbbell fly or something like that? Anything like that. Just okay. like, I basically just tell anything like that, just do it. You know, that's, that's more like check <laughs> okay. that box because that box has not been checked. Mm. Um, so yeah, whatever exercise, I don't really have a, a bias on those. Um, isometric dumbbell exercises uh, with resistant band load are sometimes nice. And you're basically like, you have a dumbbell in your hand, you have a resistance band, and then you're holding it. Uh, those are really tough and fatiguing. Um, but honestly, whatever, whatever climbers want to do, we, we're not, we're not going to get fancy. We're not going to get fancy on this. That's interesting. See, <laughs> yeah, I've never seen that before. So you would be just holding two dumbbells straight armed out in front of you with a uh, band. No, you're, you're on a, you're on like a bench basically. Okay. And, the, and then the, the, basically the band is underneath the bench. Oh, okay. A little bit of tension. Okay. Okay. And it makes you gotcha. so then you have to bow out your elbows to press into the band. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> just, just do that. Just do the, the pec fly. I think we'll stick with the pec fly. <laughs> I love it. Amazing. Awkward pause. <laughs> um, <laughs> anything we've missed or need to add for shoulders, for prevention of injury, keeping the shoulders healthy? I think we're good. I think we covered a lot okay. of options. We're yeah. killing it. Knees, shoulders. <laughs> Um, those are, I mean, those are huge. Uh, let's do fingers. I think a lot of people listening are going to want to hear your thoughts on finger injury prevention. Um, obviously such a big one is just, at least in my experience, is just some type of hangboarding, just a steady, you know, diet of doing something to keep the, the fingers strong and strengthen them in a controlled way, uh, because climbing and bouldering is so haphazard, but yeah, what are your thoughts on preventing finger injuries? Anything that most of us are missing out on as far as that goes? Yeah, I mean, climbers have been really good with their programming, right? And like basically figuring out consistent loading the fingers a certain amount. Probably, I mean, a lot of injuries occur. Maybe climbers are overdoing it on max hangs and so forth like that. Mm. And I don't think we need to go down that tangent. But what I can say when people come in to see me, the commonalities that I notice after, because there's a lot of information on fingers out there, right? The commonalities that I notice that are associated with a lot of climbers with finger injuries do not come down to the sets, reps, rest between sets, the protocol, any of that stuff with, with hangboarding. It actually comes down to what their fingers look like when they're on the board. And oh. I video, I have a video stream that's right on the hangboard on the climber's hand. And you would be amazed because we don't look directly at our hands when we hang. It's very rare, right? We, we don't get that good view. And you would be surprised what is asymmetric on climber's hands when they hang. And some of it has to do with finger length. Some of it has to do with injuries and biases. Like there's a lot that can go on. So, I mean, maybe I'll start with um, like two finger pockets would be one thing to start with and then I'll build into crimping. So when you do two finger pockets, what, what are your like, wh what's your go-to? Do you do front two, back two? Like what? I, I, I always train, uh, I always train middle two and front two. I actually find them to be Training both, I think, is really valuable, and I use them differently. Mm -hmm. Like whenever I'm in a pocket that I kind of press outward on, like almost, 
almost like you're treating a pocket like a gas stone. Yeah. I find that having the longer finger, the middle finger on the outside and doing front two is really helpful for that. And really, it feels like a stronger position. So I use both. Nice. Um, and then do you know on your hands, your 4D, 2D ratio, meaning if you look at your hand, is your index finger or your pointer finger, which one is longer or are uh, they the same? Index or ring? Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah. Index or ring finger. Um, which one is longer uh, or are they the same length? Mine are, to your middle? mine are almost exactly the same. You can see my gnarly finger, <laughs> my, my, my whole finger I hole. See. I tore a finger, tore, tore a hole in my fingertip the other day. But yeah, oh, they're yeah. almost exactly the same for me. All right. Now, can you imagine? Now, this is different for every climber, right? Can you imagine if a climber has a longer index finger? What may they do? How may they grip and how may they favor pockets? And the same if they have a longer ring finger. And you could probably think, well, if whatever fingers are similar in length, they're usually a little stronger together. Right. And right. so climbers will sometimes train their strengths and say, oh man, I'm so good at, you know, training on pockets or climbing on pockets if I use my middle finger and my index finger and I'll look at the ratio and those fingers are similar lengths and they have a shorter fourth digit, right? Mm -hmm. And so those are just some small considerations with finger pockets and selections that I just like to screen to get like a baseline of the finger itself, of, you know, of, um, of the different lengths of the fingers. For crimping, uh, what I'll oftentimes notice is what do you think happens if somebody has like a shorter pointer finger and they're trying to crimp? Like what does the pointer finger do? Yeah, I've seen this where um, I actually had a roommate. We would geek out and hang board and stuff. Um, but yeah, he had a shorter index finger and his index finger was always in like an open position even when he was in like a strict half crimp with his middle and ring finger. Yep. And it'll almost like chisel forward and be like more in an open hand versus yeah. a half crimp because it can't, you know, you can't line up your knuckles if you have a shorter, you know, pointer finger. And so, so that's another selection that the, basically the morphology or what's called the anthropometrics of the hand may bias how a climber grips. And I think it's important for climber, there's plenty, we can go on, you know, on all of these, but I think it's important for the fifth, the fifth digit is an interesting one too. Um, is that the whether pinky? someone has a... Yeah, very short pinky. Um, and those are the climbers, you know, kind of in an open hand, they can't throw that pinky on top. And so it'll flex down. And those are ones that actually can get some flexor tendon strains from just the anatomy of the finger in choosing certain positions. But I like to cover that baseline so a climber has an education of what they're working with, you know, when they're climbing and, and what their bias or favoring based on their hand position. But the most common thing that I notice with climbers, and especially on the injured fingers, has nothing to do with the length. It has to do with a visual observation of what the finger is doing when hanging. And any thoughts? Do you have any? I know this is like pretty open-ended, but <laughs> any thoughts on what that is? It's well, like, it has nothing to do with this like, you know, chiseling, it has nothing to do with like how much the knuckle bends. Oh, that was actually gonna be my guess would be that the, the dip and pip, the dip joint um, the distal, you know, yeah, that would, be, would be like hyperextending, how you see that with some people, how it's just crazy how much their finger is hyperextending at that first joint. Yeah, that is common. And that can also lead to, I know we had 
on the show notes, we had talked about maybe talking about capsulitis. That can lead to some inflammation, right, of that joint capsule at, at the end. And that's something I do see, but not as big of a contributing factor. The research hasn't really supported that much with pulley sprains as much so as just that just causes irritation at that kind of last joint in the finger. The, the, the thing that I notice actually is finger torsion. And the climber fingers are on the hangboard and the finger is subtly, one of their fingers is rotated or the mm. complete pad of the finger isn't driving into the fingerboard. It's maybe the medial or the lateral side of the finger is a little bit more so. And there's a gap that appears in between the finger that is torsioning to the side. And it is way more common than climbers think. If we line up 10 climbers right now, they're like, oh yeah, my hangboard technique is great. And everything looks solid and we videoed their hands. You may be surprised what you notice with that <laughs> finger torsion. Interesting. Um, so if a, if a climber listening to this were to just put two hands on a, you know, a fingerboard, we just assume that all of the fingers are pointing straight in towards the board, but you're saying that very commonly at least one finger would be rotated. Or the knuckle, you can see this through the knuckle, you know, if you look behind, because it's yeah. hard to like see the actual finger through the board itself. But you'll notice that you may see a little gap, like a small gap in between two of the fingers on an affected or injured side, or maybe they don't have any injuries. And just on one of their hands, everything looks great except for that one gap of space and that like kind of crease or that shadow. Um, is that like typically to compensate for a finger length difference or nothing why do, do why do people length. oh that's so interesting okay yeah now you're gonna, now you're gonna check out everyone's fingers on the <laughs> no, I'm gonna check my own for sure like yeah what? get a video on that <laughs> um, so here's the deal with climbing and with climbers we spend so much time strengthening our finger flexors and there's been a lot of you know people maybe do their finger extensors right to you know do oppositional training. The muscles that separate the fingers and bring them together, they're called interossei muscles. Those are deep stabilizers in our hand and our fingers. Climbers rarely train or strengthen those. And over time, we just try and grip as hard as we can and our fingers go the path of least resistance. So our fingers will do whatever is most comfortable or easiest to, you know, to maintain like a maximal force and, and those muscles lose their activation. So I've had extremely high level climbers come in. I'll have them put their hand in front of me and squeeze all their fingers together. I'll take my two fingers and I'll spread apart. Does that make sense? They'll like, they'll have their hand in front of me and then I'll spread apart uh, maybe two of their fingers. Yeah, so you're kind of forcing them to do like a Spock thing from there you go. Star Trek. Yeah, <laughs> man, you're so good with these descriptions. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like forcing, I'm forcing that Spock sign, right? And I can do that with minimal effort, almost no effort, and they can mm. barely even keep their hand closed. And I watch them on the hangboard, and that same gap is appearing when their fingers are on the hangboard, that same kind of opening. And I'm like, huh. And is that that same finger you injured? Yeah. Oh, well, I have something interesting for you. And so then that's the um, so that's the process. So, wow. Yeah, that's I've never heard this before. This is really really interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. It's like yeah, and the thing is, it's it's so surprising to climbers because we don't look at our fingers when we hangboard, right? They're above our head. How how are you gonna know? 
like your, your finger position. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's uh, I always get video of of that positioning and, and then try and if it's off, I'll try and relate it to what's going on. So then how do you how are you thinking that that leads to an injury? Is it just overtraining in a suboptimal like a compromised position and you're adding too much torque uh, to the fingers more than they can handle and weakening that? Like how does that lead to a climber getting an injury on the climbing wall? Yeah, so part of it can be rotational stress as you're talking about. Part of it can be, well, our hand is much stronger and more stable when everything is together, right? So it's, if you try and, you know, bring all your fingers together and grip, that's, you have to use, if, if you haven't trained a bad pattern, you should be, it should be easier and less effort to, to squeeze or crimp a hold with an optimal finger position is another. And then the other, I see this a lot with climbers who get lateral pulley injuries. So a lot of pulley injuries are like right in the front of the finger. And then some climbers will come in and they'll say, you know, I have this pulley injury in my front of my finger, but also it's kind of on the side mm. too. It's not just in the front. And they'll, they'll say, ah, oh, what, what do you think's going on? And that's something I also can correlate. Then the pulley is now being stressed in a little bit different position repetitively versus that direct anatomical pull downward. Gotcha. So, so what do we do? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm imagining an exercise where climbers like, I don't know, like put like a heavy rubber band around their fingers and just try to, you know, try to do the Spock. There's different variations of spreading their fingers over and over. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of ways to do that. And you can also, I, I take like a um, balloon, fill it with sand and put it in between the climber's fingers and they like squeeze in on the balloon, um, you know, to try and like squeeze them inwards. But really the best thing in... I can send you a video of this. It's pretty goofy, but it works so well. Is you take a double length runner and, you know, basically like some Dyneema, right? And you girth hitch a rubber band to it. So you like have this like rubber band dangling on the, you know, on the double length, length runner. Can you kind of imagine that? What is the runner attached to? Nothing. You just have, you, that's like your setup. So you, you okay, have, okay, you basically, great. you have that. You take the rubber band and you put it in that gap. Like we've already identified that gap. Now the climber's putting that rubber band in that gap and they go on the hangboard, they get into a grip position and they pull down the double length runner, right? Because it's just like at the level of their chest and they're not doing max hangs. They're just freaking gripping right on the board. And they pull down that double length runner as they try not to let that rubber band slip away or slip out. And okay. it is so hard to do for someone that is trained two, three, five, 10, 15 years in a certain pattern um, to try and stabilize those muscles. And this is an extremely low load, right? They're just pulling on the hangboard to mimic the grip position. Um, and then they're trying to basically pull that rubber band out from between their fingers. I have a fun video of that if you want me to attach please, that. Actually, please, please. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, I'll put, we'll put a link to that video. Um, I'll describe it back to you too, just for, for people. So... Just to remind me, is this in a full crimp position on the hangboard? Whatever position that the climber is getting that gap in, okay. but most often the half crimp is the most ideal to train it in. Got it. Okay, so this is a gap forming between in the basically between two fingers, between index and, and middle, or middle and ring, or you know ring and pinky. So you're sticking the rubber band that's attached to the Dyneema in between that gap between your fingers and just squeezing your fingers together while you yep. pull down in a half crimp. 
And then with the other hand, you're pulling on that sling and trying to pull the rubber band out. The rubber band's not around your finger. You're just pinching it, basically. You got it. Yeah. Okay. And it's a rubber band because that gives a little bit of that give. And then the double length runner because you don't want your hand all the way up there. You know, you could just have the double length runner kind of grabbing at chest level. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun one. And I put fun in quotations. <laughs> huh. That's so interesting. You're totally going to go on the hangboard and video. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I want to know. I'm like, <laughs> do my, are my fingers straight? I have no idea. I assume so. But I don't know. We'll find well, out. We will see. <laughs> awesome. Um, do we need to cover anything else as far as finger injury prevention? I Actually, I would love to ask you about elements of the warm-up that you recommend um, for an actual climbing session when it comes to finger injury prevention. But more globally, before we j- dive into that, any other red flags, things to look for, exercises to add to your hangboard routine or anything like that to, to help? No, I mean, I think we touched on, I almost see hangboarding as like brushing your teeth. So mm. like low load, consistent hangboarding, loop it to a pattern such as maybe brushing your teeth is when you can do like, you know, you know, your sort of consistent program. And then, yeah, I think the finger torsion, I mean, we could, I could speak for hours on every intricacy of the fingers, but I think in general that that's like a good foundation. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I've seen some of your videos of warming up for a climbing session and I Mm -hmm. I can like picture, I think this was one of your videos. I can picture Jonathan Segris like doing the, the finger flossing, you know, like the the little finger flicks and the flossing and stuff like that. What are some of the key elements that belong in a climber's warm up for either a training session or a climbing session that most people don't do? So First of all, I could say the only research-based warm-up for climbers that's been kind of validated has been that you need to do something for your pulleys, for the pulleys, is that you need to do 100 cyclic moves, so 50 moves on each hand to that are progressively harder. Each of those are getting progressively harder. And they did an imaging study looking at the bowstring of the tendon and the bowstringing, so the amount that the tendon the flexor tendons are kind of moving away from the bone, uh, reach this kind of plateau at about that 100 move or 50 50 moves per hand. Meaning if you do 600 moves to warm up, it's probably not going to be any better than if you do 100 moves and you're probably just fatiguing yourself and, you know, and or getting getting cold in the process. So I think that's one thing to, you know, research guide us a little bit for fingers. Um, That's an important component is, you know, is making sure to not under or over warm up and make sure that it's progressive, that you're getting more and more load through time. Is that relevant or relative to a specific grip position? Like, for example, you know, if if half of those are on jugs and then you jump to crimps, um, thoughts on that? Should should that be, yeah, should, should we only be counting more like fingery grips or repetitions? Yeah, be more on, you're talking about like, yeah, into your half crimp positions where you're actually, you know, putting some stress and some load on the fingers. If you're grabbing on jugs, that wouldn't count as one of the repetitions. Got it. Okay. Um, Now, maybe the jugs are nice to warm up your shoulders, your body, get some body movement. But if we're talking about the fingers in particular, those are progressive loads on, you know, larger to smaller crimps. That's interesting. And actually... 
I'm glad we're talking about this because something um, I've just been realizing recently here in Waco, I have this whole warm-up routine, you know, like I, I go into North Mountain, I hike to the top of the chains, I have my little warm-up circuit of boulders that I do. I have no idea how many total moves it is. Um, but it, it makes me feel pretty good and pretty warmed up. It's maybe like six to eight different boulder problems. And then I typically go to a project and I'll kind of do a stage two warm-up that is refining movements, you know, maybe doing the easier sections of the climb and kind of building up to trying the thing or trying from start. Um, but something I realized recently that I, I get in the habit of doing and I'm working on this is it's just so common or, or just so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess intuitive to me to just j get on easy things and climb them very easily. So I'll often yeah. climb the V zeros and the ones and the twos with like very relaxed open hand positions. And then I'm jumping straight to crimping at like a relatively high level, which I don't think is a good idea. So something I've been doing, I'm actually, uh, I was re remembering a conversation I had with uh, Emil Abrahamson on this podcast. And he, when he was working on improving his crimping, he would just do a ton of crimping in his warm-up. So he'd climb these really easy things, but just full crimp everything at a really comfortable load. And so I've been doing that. Like I do a bunch of the warm-ups, but then I do them again and full crimp every single hold. And um, yeah, it, it makes a big difference. And I, that has been a piece of my warm-up that I've been totally neglecting recently is like that moderate to progressively harder and harder level of crimping to really get ready to try hard. Yeah, that's awesome too, because you're obviously, you have a little bit more limitations outdoors with like what you can climb, right? You can't have yeah. that perfect next step that, you know, that you can jump on. So that's, that's a, you know, that's a, I haven't heard that much before, but that's a great idea is just basically over grip or crimp on something so that you're using your movement patterns, but you're truly warming up the, the fingers. It's counterintuitive because it's bad technique. Like you shouldn't climb a V1 or, you know, a 510 or 511. If you're like, out. yeah, if you're going to like project a 513 that day or something, it doesn't make sense to full crimp every hold. You know, you want to like practice being relaxed. And if you have the margin, you can open, open hand everything. But um, but yeah, some intentional crimping as part of the warm up, I think is uh, it's really valuable. So thanks, Emil. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a yeah, fun. Yeah, kudos to Emil. Yeah. And then I think one thing to add that's kind of fun if you're intentionally crimping and then you, before you get on your project, if you want to, your stuff, everything's warm. So you've already check marked everything's warm, but you want to reverse that neurologic pattern of over crimping, right? Because now your tissues are warm, everything's good, but your brain may have a little thing in the back of your head that's like, ooh, grip harder, right? Mm. Uh, because you're over gripping on some smaller things is you can do just grab your finger and then shake your elbow. And so <laughs> basically you grab the tip of your finger and you like shake your elbow back and forth like a chicken wing and you release, you don't let any of the muscles in your fingers work. You just let them release. And that's actually a way that you can then neurologically just retrain your fingers to let go a little bit. Um, so it's a, another goofy one, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's something that, I don't know, maybe some, someone can play with and try. This would be before a hard red point attempt to keep you from over gripping. Yeah. So let's say you did your strategy and you were on, you know, a V1 and you're like cruxing, you know, you're just going for like, you know, full crimp, <laughs> half crimps. And well, I'm like, not like pulling as hard as I can. I'm just, 
<laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but um, but and so you're like, okay, your your muscles, your tendons, your pulleys are all warmed up. But in the back of your mind, if you wanted to like let it go, kind of chill out your hand, what you could do is before you jump on your project, basically grab your finger and then you shake your elbow back and forth, but try and relax all the muscles in your finger so they're not gripping. And then I got, so I have, I, I, I'm on Zoom right now so we can see each other. I can right. see Steven being like, no way, I'm, I'm not doing that. <laughs> no, <laughs> and, not that. I'm just, no, I'm just like, like, okay, people, people just aren't going to know exactly what you're doing. So Jared is holding his right, <laughs> his right hand out with his pointer finger sticking out, grabbing his pointer finger with his left hand and a fist and then shaking his right elbow and just jiggling yeah. the hand and finger all around loosening but things moving up. but moving your shoulder and letting your hand relax so uh, okay so basically your shoulder is driving the motion your hand is fully relaxed and then that's a like a central nervous system trick to try and relax some of your gripping muscles nice so okay may, maybe someone listening will try that but potentially everyone will be, all right we'll, 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 we'll try something it's else. climbing so silly and weird anyway I'm, I'm not above trying something that looks goofy at the cr- at the crag i know you're I'll, definitely going to video your it. fingers uh fingerboarding though <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Interesting. So I was expecting more of like the the finger nerve glides and flossing and flicks and stuff like that. Any of that stuff that you like to add to a warm up? So the flicks, like basically taking a rubber band, putting around the fingers. When I prescribe those to climbers, I prescribe those based on if I feel like they need a greater muscle pump of circulation. Hmm. So I take the temperature, there's temperature zones in the upper body. And I basically take the temperature from the biceps down to the forearm, down to the hand, down to the fingers. And if there is a temperature decrease, and I actually have a formula for this, but there's a temperature decrease and the climber, let's just say has colder hands, it takes longer to warm up. I will have them do those finger flicks because that activates some of the muscles in the hands to warm up the fingertips. And that can send some blood flow down to that area. So I will bias that in some of my treatments. Got it. So there's a method to the madness. All this stuff that climbers (laughs) are doing is likely very effective, but wouldn't it be great to just do one or two of them? Right? (laughs) Yeah. Like all all of them. Yeah, this is actually, I mean, this is really cool because I was actually expecting... Um, just based on what I've seen of your work in the past, I was expecting like an overwhelming amount of homework to, to have to do to keep my body healthy. But so far, I mean, everything we've talked about, the knees, the shoulders, the fingers, I'm like, oh, this is just like one or two things to do for each yeah. deal. And it's like, it sounds pretty easy. I mean, not easy, but it sounds simple. It sounds very reasonable. Yeah, it's way less than you think. Like yeah. climbers that are doing seven, 10 different exercises for different things, okay, maybe that, that's helpful, but you probably just need two or three, right? Mm. And, and if, if they're targeted, um, things would be a lot easier. So, so yeah, so hopefully those are some like pearls or some like little ways that, you know, climbers can listen. And, and the easy thing is if your hands are cold, you should probably do finger flicks when you warm up, right? Those are yeah. like some kind of intuitions because that will help circulate some of the muscles or some of the, the blood flow. Okay. Um, I'm glad you said that. I, I meant to ask you this and then we got away from it, but now we're back. With the 100 move thing, 50 moves per hand, 
This is getting more and more common where climbers are bringing portable hangboards to the crag. Sometimes that's so valuable. Like if you're out at a project, there's no good warm-ups around whatever, or you need to rewarm up between tries, things like that. How might someone mimic that 50 moves per hand using like a tension block or a portable hangboard? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple ways. Obviously, sling it on a tree or, you know, sling it on your feet or something where you can actually, you know, put a little bit of load on it. Those are a little trickier because they're unstable. So just remember that we talked a lot about finger torsion instability. They're not fully stable like rock is, right? And so um, maybe you do a little bit less volume or load on that because more of your muscles are kicking in um, on those hangboards. Um, but some things that you can do, uh, I really like having those on a heavy resistance band and having climbers actually do some finger curls to warm up. Um, so they're basically curling their fingers back and forth into the portable hangboard under some resistance. And then either doing some pulls or hangs of progressive challenge either. I mean, I haven't seen anyone do this, but you could take a scale out to the to the crag or... If you have, you know, a couple bucks, you can get a dynamometer, like maybe 50 bucks. Um, you hook that on, it tells you the exact amount that you're gripping and you can go a little bit more and more each time. If you're on an $8 budget, you can get uh, what's called a, um, a luggage weight and basically, or a luggage weigher. And you know, like oh, how yeah. you would lug yeah. like your bags in the airport. So those are like eight bucks. So if you had eight bucks, you can hook one of those up if you really want to know the the different numbers. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of different ways to load. Do you have any tips or tricks, Steven, on your end that, you know, with portable hangboards that you've used or that that you've seen? I mean, what's, what's coming to mind? Like I really, um... I like just having like a one-handed implement because it's small. So like a tension block that I throw in my bag yeah. with a sling attached to it that I can loop around my foot just because it's so easy, but I'm not strong enough to hang one-handed from that thing. So I just loop it around my foot. Sometimes I'll just use my foot as resistance and do finger curls with that. Um, but the thing that's coming to mind, I use a two-handed portable hangboard sometimes as well. And... I think something that I do that's probably stupid is I hang it from a quick draw and immediately start hanging at body weight. And yeah. that probably doesn't make the most sense, you know, like when it comes to that 50 reps thing. Um, so yeah, maybe for people listening, just starting with your feet on the ground with two hands and just pulling. I mean, what do you think? Just doing like repeaters, like super, super gentle repeaters and just slowly pulling a little bit harder, a little bit harder. Yeah, I mean, all that you need to do is progressively load, right? Okay. Just increase that load so that towards the end, you're at a challenging level. Um, and that is allowing that tendon to bowstring further and further under load. Um, so yeah, I mean, the two-handed um, hangboards are a little tricky because they're a bit narrow too as well. So the wrist will like deviate. Um, mm. but, um, but yeah, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, and isometric is what you're kind of talking about where you're just kind of pulling in the duration repeaters at seven seconds. That's what you're going to do anyway. When you're on, like when you're on most of the moves on your boulder problem, you may be up to seven seconds on that move. Um, so I think that's a fine, you know, that, that number is probably appropriate for, for warming up. Um, but, uh, but you could also do things where you're locking in your finger position and then moving your arm. And so I've mm. had some climbers actually hook a resistance band, a heavy one around a tree. And then they're basically doing some rows and they're kind of rowing 
with the um, tension block or the portable hangboard. And that's their kind of early warm-up. And then they start loading the fingers and hanging and, and doing things a little bit more progressive. So there's a lot of methods uh, to do so. But to be simple, as long as it's progressively getting more and more challenging and you're hitting that 100 reps or 50 each arm, then you're in the right spot. Awesome. Amazing, man. Well, I've got um, quite a few really interesting and good listener questions for you. Um, I want to check in with you and see how much time you have and how you're feeling because we could tackle the elbows. We haven't covered that and then go into some questions or we can, I mean, we've been going for coming up on two hours now. So I want to oh, respect wow. your time. We can start. I know these things fly by, don't they? They fly, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I just always... remember a couple, a couple minutes ago we were talking about rapping. Uh, so... <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know. I like, I'm like, really? I just double checked my recorder, but yeah. It's, it's well, been... Steven, I guess before we move on, you have to do a rap. I think you have to do, oh you have gosh. to rhyme something. I've got nothing, dude. Maybe I two don't... sentences? <laughs> Oh man. Um what could I do? I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. I'm okay. sorry. It's I hate to good. disappoint. Yeah. Um but yeah, how are you feeling about time? Let's do it. Yeah, let's keep going. Okay. Elbows. 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 I have uh I have definitely struggled with elbows, both what you described earlier, like doing more compressing than I was ready for and developing some pretty angry probably golfer's elbow um so inside of the elbow inside of the elbow yeah from that and i think that's the main one i've always struggled more with golfer's elbow versus tennis elbow which would be the outside but yeah i mean from doing too much compression climbing other chapters in my life when i was just doing like hangboard stuff and lock off training and blah 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 just doing too much and um yeah, there's some great resources. I think one of Dave McLeod's videos really helped me with that and helped me rehab. But obviously, it'd be great to prevent all that stuff in the first place. And it's it, yeah. it was interesting what you said earlier, like the misdiagnosis thing. Maybe you can just start with that and elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, well, maybe before I start, what, what helped you? Kind of maybe share with people what, what was the, the big things that helped. Yeah, so if I remember, I, I can't remember if it was Dave McLeod or someone else. Um, but I just remember they this video talked about there's three main causes and it helped me pinpoint the one that was irritating my elbows. So it was like nice. some people have like a flexion at the wrist that is the issue. Sometimes it's like a torsional twisting at the wrist. So like if you just hold your other hand and try to twist your your hand... And that was the one that lit up my pain a little bit. The pronator. That's called a pronator. The pronator. And so, yeah, I think it was the first two. And then um, the third one is, I think it's like finger flexion, like, you know, pulling your fingers into a full crimp. And that didn't seem to aggravate it at all. So I did a combination of, I think it was eccentrics, like holding onto a frying pan straight up in Mm -hmm. front of me and like lowering it down and then helping it back up to vertical with the other hand. Those seem to help a lot paired with this really strange exercise that you do with the TheraBand flex bar Mm -hmm. um, where you like twist it like this and then rotate it out. What's the name of it? Because it's going to be impossible for me to describe that one. Reverse flex bar twist. Okay. Yeah. And I'll share, I'm sure they have videos on their website. Um, I'll share those, but those two things in combination did the trick. 
Nice. Um, yeah, and for, for tendinopathy, what the literature has shown, uh, it's changed over time. I mean, first, it was that only eccentrics, which is eccentric is kind of like slowly lowering a position. And then some literature came out that it's concentrics and eccentrics. So actually, you know, like with a dowel or, or hammer, like basically rotating your palm all the way up and down, like that full range of motion. And then some literature came out that it's concentrics, eccentrics, and isometrics, like holding that end position for 10 seconds at the end. And in the end, you just need to selectively strengthen the tendon that is affected, and it likely will help with your symptoms. Um, and as you mentioned, there's three to four you know, different tendons that attach to that area. Um, and if you can differentiate which one's the most affected, then you can kind of save time and focus on that one exercise. So, so a lot of climbers have success with that, you know, and they're able to kind of, you know, heal up their, their tendinopathy, especially on the inside of the elbow. Um, I tend to see climbers that have tried all of that and it doesn't work. And so now they're like coming to me and they're like, all right, listen, I tried everything online, like every component, um, what's next. Um, and most of those climbers that I see, it's not tendinopathy. I, I, I do those tests and those measures and it may create some discomfort, but I put them in a different position in a specific position of their elbow that tensions what's called the ulnar nerve. And it's a nerve that comes you know, from the neck through the chest down the inside of the elbow. And it's basically, it's called an ulnar nerve tension test. And I put them in that position and it's almost like, have you ever done owl eyes where you like- Oh yeah. You know, but the, yeah, so it's almost like owl eyes. I put them in that position. And Where you're like flipping your hand upside down with like the okay position and, and holding that. Wow, that's, I've been able to do that in the past. That's really tight for me right now. Well, okay. Well, stiffen that position. Wait, try it try on your other side. <laughs> really, the left side, what was the elbow that had the, the inner elbow issue? Uh, they both did, but I think okay. left was worse. Yeah, left was worse. Oh, mm. so maybe a couple hour owl eye exercises for you may, <laughs> I guess may help so. preventatively. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know, if, uh, listener, but Stevens basically was doing those owl eye positions, and he was a little restricted, you know, on that, <laughs> on that left side. A little bit so, tight. <laughs> a little tight. So I'll put them in that position, and they'll they'll get their elbow pain, or it'll be like just subtle. They'll feel like, uh, I feel just a little bit of that. And then I'll lower their shoulder blade down. And what that does is that tensions the nerve through the neck. And then I'll bend their neck to the side. And if that brings on their elbow pain, which it sometimes will, and, and more times or not, if done correctly, it will, uh, then moving their neck change their elbow pain. Well, we have to go a little bit deeper into this may not be tendinopathy. And then mm. I'll, I'll kind of go in that direction. So... Um, so oftentimes I see that mimicking um, this kind of nerve syndrome syndromes mimicking tendinopathy. And then the other thing is either a stiff joint or a loose joint in the elbow. So a elbow joint that's like too loose or too stiff can also cause some joint related pain. And there's some ways to differentiate that by overpressing the joint or distracting the joint and, and seeing if that changes their symptoms. So, um, for example, if someone has elbow pain and they, uh, like let's say inner elbow pain and they think it's tendinopathy, they may want to double check by, Stephen, you're gonna have to describe this cause you're really good at this, <laughs> but by doing this. 
<laughs> okay, so you're you're <laughs> you're lifting up your right arm with your elbow pointed towards me, straight in front, and then pulling your fist back to your ear, basically. So you're but you're, with your opposite hand, so your arms like fully relaxed. Okay. Okay. And you're so like you're pulling... over over pressing your elbow. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So if yeah. that causes elbow pain, well, it's more likely to be related to a joint, a stiff joint. You're compressing that joint. Mm. And if you put a towel in that little pit of your elbow, and let's say you, that's, that joint is stiff, it's causing some pain. You put a towel there and you do that same kind of pressure mm-hmm. and the pain goes away. Yeah, that's it's likely a joint related. And gapping that joint is actually making it feel better. And there's some specific exercises you can do for that. Interesting. Okay. So yeah. So you, again, you're pointing your elbow forward and then using your other hand to try to bring your forearm to touch your bicep and shoulder basically. Yep. So like squeezing that, that joint tighter than it naturally wants to go. Yep. And if that's painful, you slide a towel in the pit of your elbow, kind of in that crease. And that if you do that again and there's no pain, well, all you did was create some more space in that joint. And mm. your treatment is create more space in that joint, you know, make that feel better. And that's likely, you know, I, I know um, there's an exercise a lot of climbers do for inside elbow pain where they lie on their stomach. I think Tom Randall popularized this and they bring their arms underneath their torso and they like lie on their elbows and it's like fulcrums your your elbow really straight. It's, it's very uncomfortable. The climbers that have that, that, the climbers who that helps with their elbow pain, likely there's a joint related issue that that's mm. straightening or making their joint less stiff. And it's a great exercise if someone tests positive for these like different joint tests. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I have a question from Felix. Let me find it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not going to read this whole question. I'm going to paraphrase it and ask the second part, but he is dealing with on and off golfer's elbow. It's never mm-hmm. ne- never really bad, but it's just kind of always there. And he wanted to know, uh, what is a way to know if pain with a tendinopathy like that is just something being created by the brain that we can ignore? Or is it actually, how do we know whether or not it's just that or if it's actually a sign of acute damage? And when do we know whether you know, doing an activity that causes that pain is okay and it's going to help retrain our brain versus actually make things worse. Yeah, so there's a way to test this, to actually test this. And there's three ways to do so. Um, And it's a process called graded motor imagery. And the, I guess, one step, I want you to imagine this. So let's say his pain is on his right inner elbow, right? So if he takes a mirror, just like, I don't know, like some, I don't know, mirror that you would, you can hold in your hand, right? And you you place that mirror right in front of you. So it's like perpendicular to your body and your arms are in front of you. Am I describing that? Do you want to re-paraphrase, Steve, or are we good on that? I'll let you keep going. Yeah, I think it makes sense so far. (laughs) So there's a mirror in front of your body. And your non-affected side, your left side, which is the pain-free side, is the one that's facing the mirror. And you look down at the mirror and you see your left elbow and you see what appears to be your right elbow. 
Mm. But it really is just a reflection of your left elbow. Are we are we good on that? Yeah. So you're in that position. Your right arm's just relaxing. Your left arm's relaxing. You have a mirror splitting your body. You could see your left elbow as well as a reflection of it that appears in your brain as your right elbow. So then you do something that would normally cause right elbow pain. Maybe, Stephen, like that, that's that like pronation or that palm down position you're talking about. You do that with your left side. So with your non-painful side and you stare in the mirror. And as you rotate your palm down, which would normally be painful on your right side, not on your left side, and you see that image of the mirror, it looks as though your right side is doing it, but it really isn't. And if that causes your pain, that is 100% pain that is, you know, being interpreted in your brain uh, that, you know, that has now been centralized in your brain and spinal cord and you fit into a category or classification that you're probably safe to do a lot of these activities. You just have to retrain your brain. Um, that is so, fucking fascinating. Isn't that <laughs> crazy? So, that's so crazy. <laughs> like that'll actually happen. Like you're moving your left arm staring in a mirror so that it looks like your right arm is doing the thing, but your right arm is actually just hanging out at your side doing nothing. And that will actually, like, you'll actually feel the pain as if your right arm were, were doing 100%. The if wow. the pain is centralized in your brain and spinal cord, if it's been greater than three months, if it's been chronic in nature, I see it all the time. And climbers freak out because I, I pause and I say, hey, you just rotated your left side and your pain came on. What do you think's going on? And I just pause, right? And so so that just means that the pain is centralized so much in the brain that you're perceiving pain where the tissues may actually be healed and not damaged. Hmm. Um, so that's like one of the methods. And there's other methods. There's like tons of research on this that's fascinating. Um, so I'm a professor at USC. So in my course, at course I actually teach this stuff. Um, and it's like, it's amazing like how effective it can be, but obviously these are tests, right? So if you do that test and it's negative, well, let's try another test and see if this other test means that your brain is interpreting things differently. So there's an app, it's called the Recognize app, R-E-C-O-I-N-I-Z, maybe like five bucks or something. And on this app, it has a bunch of pictures of elbows. And so this app has a system in it where you give the climber the app and they look at the app of all these different elbows and they have to guess whether it's a right elbow or a left elbow. And these elbows are in all different positions, right? And so they go through, they press right, left, right, left, all these different positions and it'll give a readout and it'll say how long it took you to interpret the right-sided elbows and how many of them you got correct or wrong and the same on the left side. And you can imagine if someone has this like kind of centralized pain, some of them may do quite poorly recognizing that right elbow in all these different orientations. And that means their brain is having a different perception of it. So there's all these different directions that you can go with it. But I don't know. Those are just a few ways. I don't know if we got too deep into it. No, I love it. I, I did... Um... Heath Jennings talked about this. I had him on for people that that want to do a deep dive on pain and just how fucking weird and crazy it is. <laughs> but yeah, that episode's worth checking out. We talked about the Recognize app in that one. 
Nice, nice. Um, but no, that's that's really helpful. Um, we're going to be jumping around. These questions are kind of all over the place, but they touch on things that we've already talked about. I got three questions about finger injuries, and I apologize to to the guys that submitted, um, VJ, Jason, and Eli. We don't have time to probably go into all of them because they're kind of they're kind of um, what's the word I'm looking for. They're kind of case studies. Like these guys shared, like, here's my whole like thing, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like a pretty long paragraph. Um, so I kind of summarized them into a few points that I think would be good to hit on. The first one, how might you diagnose and or treat a PIP or DIP joint inflammation and any advice? And then is it okay to climb open-handed when rehabbing an injury like that? Yeah, so a PIP or DIP joint, so those are the two different joints that bend your fingers. And the DIP is the distal one, the furthest one. The PIP is the the, the closest one. Those are before your kind of like fist knuckles. So those are the last two joints of your fingers. And so a condition called capsulitis or synovitis is fairly common with some rock climbers, especially in the middle finger because it's a longer finger. So the PIP joint on the middle finger has to flex more during you know, half crimp positions uh, because it is longer um, to kind of accommodate. So it's a fairly common condition. You need to make sure you differentiate that from something called osteoarthritis, which is if you've been climbing for a long time and all of your fingers hurt and all of your joints hurt, and you're maybe over the age of 40 and there's stiffness the first 30 minutes in the morning, those types of things, you would need to differentiate that. But it appears as though he's talking about synovitis or capsulitis. And with those conditions, was his question uh, how to train or avoid it or how to prevent it or what was his main, how to diagnose it? Diagnose and or treat, yeah. So the diagnosis for that's fairly simple. If visually, if the, like visually, if the knuckle is enlarged that's kind of one swollen. T- yeah kind of swollen and it's not like the swelling like you roll your ankle it's kind of puffy no it's like a hardened swelling um that is one criteria uh the second criteria you can use is you overpress the joint so you press it all the way down into your finger bending and then all the way back in the other direction and that will typically be painful as well And the third assessment is you then add some compression, what's called longitudinally. So you basically take the two joint surfaces and you push them together. So I don't know how how to describe this, but it would be like bringing the surfaces together like that. So I like squeeze their finger longitudinally versus bending it. Steven, maybe you can describe this. Yeah, that's a tough, oh man, this is a tough one. So imagine like if you have your middle finger in, in like a hook or like a J sort of position. And then you're like pressing the thumb of your other hand on your fingernail. And then you're pressing, you know, another finger on the back of your PIP joint and kind of compressing that second bone in your finger, like squeezing yeah, it. Kind of like jamming together. Um, so if that causes some pain and then you distract or pull them apart and that feels better, then it's like, all right, that's a slam dunk of capsulitis. I mean, mm. I can obviously image or ultrasound the finger to see some of that swelling, but that you're pretty much in that boat. Um, and so that's the diagnostic process. And it's actually recommended. You can climb open-handed with capsulitis. It's actually the half crimp 
that really affects it and bothers it. Because when you're in the half crimp, especially that middle digit, sometimes that fourth digit, that causes compression or shearing right at the joint. And so that's the one climbing hold that typically would flare things up a little bit. And so I have climbers, it's just something that you manage. It's not something that you have to stop climbing, but it's a condition you kind of have to moderate and manage how much you climb with it. Awesome, awesome. I think that's super helpful. Uh, and then this one, what advice would you give to a climber who often has pulley aches, but never a quote, real injury? Yeah. Maybe I'd like say, a two out of 10, I think was this person's example. I'd say I see a lot of climbers that think they have pulley injuries and it's actually flexor tenus innovitis. And so I have a great uh, free article up actually up on the webpage that um, one of my, I have a climbing special interest group of doctoral students that um, we kind of get together and nerd out about climbing. And so one of the students actually wrote this great article on synovitis. So maybe that'd be something I could link in the, in the show notes because um, it goes through how to diagnose it, how to go through this whole process. Um, but if you have kind of this like latent, maybe diffuse pain over the pulley region that can sometimes spread upwards a little bit more into the you know, the the phalanx or the kind of the meat of the finger, uh, that can sometimes just be an inflammation of the sheath that surrounds the tendon and not an actual pulley sprain. Um, and so that's something that like deloading it and then doing actually eccentric exercises, ones where you're kind of slowly letting your fingers curl open can actually positively affect that because it's not as much that pulley, it's more the tendon itself. So maybe we could share that article. Um, as, yeah, as sure. A, we have a lot of resources. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'll maybe yeah. share that article. He did a great job on that. Um, so that can kind of help out. Awesome. Okay. Okay, this is a totally different topic, but I thought this was such an interesting question. This is from Anna. And uh, it's a few different, it's a few mini paragraphs. So I'll read the whole thing. I think it's really good. Anna writes, we've recently seen several top climbers in their 30s, Paul Robinson, John Glassberg as examples, develop major disc injuries. Notably, both of them are dedicated boulderers with long and prolific careers. They've hit the ground many thousands of times in bouldering falls. One might speculate a connection here. Uh, beyond these specific cases, what does Jared think of the long-term cumulative stresses of bouldering, not just from pulling, but also from hitting the ground? We think of bouldering risk often in terms of acute injury hazards, like missing the pads and breaking an ankle. But over the course of a career, the cumulative wear of many falls is also concerning. These have... Uh, things have improved since the area of verm landing in the dirt, but there seems to be potential for long-term issues even with pads. So what does Jared, uh, does Jared have thoughts about these risks and ways to mitigate them? Uh, perhaps ways to strengthen the back or the knees, et cetera, to better stand up to the rigors of bouldering. Well written. As yeah, totally. Well put. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... You know, if you talk to climbers, how often are climbers training like plyometric eccentric strength, jumping off of a box, landing in the perfect position and having that be like, oh, I'm doing this because I want to get better at landing when I boulder. Right. It's like that's a very uncommon thing. It's mostly when climbers are training plyometric strength, this like kind of explosive ability. 
It's to be able to be more dynamic when climbing. It's that upward motion, right, of like latching a dyno. Um, so first of all, yes, I, I agree that, you know, there's this kind of long-term toll that you have on your body from, from landing o- over time. And then the question is what can be done to kind of mitigate that? I think that was the second part of the, the question. And so working on landing training and part of it, there's a strength component, but a lot of it is actually the position of your lower body. And if you watch someone jump and land from a boulder problem. So just imagine you're jumping off a boulder problem, right? And you're landing and you're just like relaxed. Which direction do you think your knees go? Do they go outwards or they kind of cave inwards? If you just like, don't put any strength or work into it. Oh yeah. If it's, yeah. If there's no thought into it, I would assume they'd kind of collapse inward. Yeah. So I would assume that's not ideal. (laughs) So yeah, that's something that's really interesting is especially with bouldering and falling, it's not a big deal. You, you know, land a hundred times, your knees go in, that's fine. But that over, you know, the course of a career over time, the simplest thing is to train the movement mechanics of landing with your knees stacked over your ankles a little bit more. And that's something you train, you know, on, you're not cruxing on a boulder problem, right? You're training that as you're kind of warming up and, and landing. But I'd say that would be something that's quite important because then that way you're absorbing more shock through the large gluteal muscles and the quadricep muscles instead of absorbing shock through your ligaments as you land. And the second thing is when we land bouldering, our spine flexes forward. That is the common position, right? We, we don't really land and like backbend that often. Um, it's more like as you crunch down into a squat, you'll have a little bit of a, a spine kind of rounding forward, um, especially if the hips are a little bit stiffer. So strengthening the back muscles that extend the spine, those kind of Superman exercises or even deadlifts, you know, those types of exercises are really like maybe countering of all the different flexion based positions that we would have when we're bouldering. So if I were to tick three things off, I would say for preventative landing with good mechanics, kind of with the knees out, uh, the low back muscles being strong into extension, and then making sure the hips are flexible enough uh, going up towards your spine without your back rounding, kind of keeping a neutral spine with your with your hips flexing upward. Awesome. Awesome. I want to get your thoughts on this because this just comes to mind. I, I really I really hate this... Um, this language that we so often use, especially as Westerners of like wear and tear, you know, wear and tear on my knees and my body and blah, blah, blah. But you know, the, the, I, I got this from Natasha Barnes. I just love what she said. She's like, the human body's not a car. It's, it's not like it rusts out and wears out. It heals itself. It's miraculous, you know? Um, so what are your thoughts on something like falling practice and intentionally spending more time jumping off a box onto the floor, like, is that going to wear and tear and, and break us down? Or are we actually getting tissue adaptation adaptation and, and like regeneration from that kind of stuff? Like, what are your thoughts on spending more time doing that so long as we're practicing those good mechanics? Is that just a mechanics and habit and position thing? Or is it also like a physiological stress that's going to lead to a positive adaptation? Yeah, I mean, that's movement training. Like the more time you can spend doing things with optimal kind of ideal movement patterns and then 
the time you could spend doing it with varied movement patterns, right? Because you're not always going to be in that perfect position. Um, yeah, that that's that's not going to be too damaging. And you can almost think motion is lotion. As we're, you know, as we're moving, we're lubricating our joint surfaces. So it's a very safe thing to do to to train falling with intention um, and to know that you're putting yourself in a bunch of different scenarios and environments. And really, in the end, it's all about variety. Every time you land, you're not going to be landing perfectly with your knees out when you land bouldering. Um, but if one third of the time your knees are in a different position, well, now you have a much more rounded, you know, amount of, you know, parts of your body that are absorbing impact. And so it's, uh, I think that, yeah, movement training is really what you're describing. Awesome. <clears throat> awesome. Thanks for the question, Anna. I think that's a good one. And thanks for the answer. Very good answer. Sean had a question about rest days and deload weeks and what we should do during rest periods to help our bodies recover and what we should do to, um, or rather what we should avoid doing if there's anything. So Sean writes, rest days and deload weeks or periods seem to be an essential part of avoiding injury. What does Jared recommend we do on rest days to help the body recover? And is there anything to avoid? I'm specifically wondering about cross-training work and any sort of PT type exercises. Same thing goes for deload weeks. Anything in particular that's helpful or harmful to keep in mind? Yeah, I mean, before what to do, I think the what not to do is probably the first, you know, the first thing. And I mean, smoking during all, you know, those types of things, smoking, drinking heavy alcohol, having poor nutrition, not sleeping and being stressed. Like if you can take all of those together, if you can minimize or take out all of those variables, that is going to be highly effective and maybe even more effective than some of the general recommendations of, of what to do. But, uh, but yeah, just thinking about your diet, your, if you're smoking or your uh, drinking, like, you know, alcoholic beverages, um, you know, and stress and sleep. So I'd put those five kind of in a basket of, just be aware of them, you know, and, and how they interplay, but those definitely play a role in recovery. There's no doubt about those. And then I think deloading or, or taking time off. I mean, the question is what can be done safely or what, um, or what can be done when you're not climbing and not training? Is that kind of the, the big question? Yeah, I think he's getting it. Like, are, are there any exercises that are restorative that are, you know, that we should seek out that are helpful versus just taking pure rest? Yeah, I mean, the key is movement. And so if you can do anything where you are moving your joints and your muscles through a full range of motion, now whether that is loaded, whether that is, let's say you did a bunch of hangboarding and you're now deloading or taking a little bit of time off. Well, can you do some gentle crimping through a full range of motion um, on a fingerboard where your fingers are going through an entire range? under a very, very low load just to keep the, you know, kind of the full length tension of those muscles going. And the same for any other region of the body. You basically, our fingers get so much isometric strength. Why not give them during our deloading or our rest breaks some movement into a full concentric and eccentric position? So I usually think of like whatever we do in climbing, do the same thing, but do it differently. Meaning... <laughs> 
think of the muscle action. We're always pulling with our arms with climbing. So probably a good thing on your rest day would be some type of pushing exercise or something that pushes it through a range of motion. And climbing, we're always pulling concentrically. So maybe you'll do pushing eccentrically. So I, I like playing with those variables a little bit. Awesome, man. Well, I'm, um, I've really enjoyed this. I think this has been an invaluable conversation and really fun for me and really fun to get to know you. Um, I'm going to start wrapping up unless you think there's anything that's really important to hit on that we haven't touched. No, I think, I think we touched on a lot. We a did. Lot, a lot of yeah, we, components. Yeah. We killed it. We have a lot of things to share in the show notes. I wanted to ask you, what is an area of climbing rehab or injury prevention or training that is currently really interesting to you? Something that you're psyched about or learning about? Yeah, I mean, the big thing I'm psyched about, I guess maybe splitting it in two, but one thing that I'm psyched about right now is actually training and teaching more and more physical therapists, medical providers who are interested in teaching climbers. A lot of my shift has gone from, I spent a lot of time the past decade focused on educating climbers. And now it's like, there's a lot of climbing physical therapists out there. And I feel like I have some experience, some knowledge, some things that I've learned over the years, it'd be helpful to share with them. So my current emphasis is now kind of training or educating from what I know for better or for worse, um, a lot of the physical therapists and, and medical providers that are out there. So that's one thing I'm like super psyched on and building that community, uh, building a community of medical providers that are collaborative. And I'm in a unique position where I'm doing a lot of different things, right? And so I don't rely on this, like seeing climbers, that's not what I rely on financially. It's what I do for my passion that I love doing. And so there is some challenges with, you know, clinicians that are in the same geographic area or things like that. And I really try want to try and make more of a community. So that's like one of my goals is to try and like bring more of the clinicians together because I learned so much from other clinicians as well. Um, mm. So that's one thing I'm like psyched on like right now. Um, and then what I like learning, I think learning, I've been getting really into diagnostic ultrasound and, you know, I've been starting some new research studies and just really scanning the fingers, getting into starting to do more and more climbing peer reviewed research. And that's what I've just gotten after. Cause I have so many questions in my head from all the patients I've seen. Now it's time to really test them, um, you know, under the scrutiny of science. So th those are my two kind of components. I love that. Can you give us a teaser? Can you share one or two of those questions that are are burning, or is that giving away giving away too much for the research? Yeah. Well, one thing you know, I wanna I wanna start testing actually limb position and basically shoulder blade position during hangboarding and track those you know with injury prevention studies because there's so much anecdotal information about how you should hang. Uh, so we kind of should have some data on some biometric studies and some, you know, actual joint positioning and see how that translates and then correlate that to, you know, basically climbing grade and injuries. So that would be something that would be interesting. Um, and then uh, protocol based studies. So studies that are looking at specific injuries and what the ideal way to rehabilitate and comparing and trying different types of protocols um, and 
So that's those are maybe two two directions. Um, but there's some studies in the works, and I'm super psyched on them. And it basically, I feel a little bit more like a mad scientist now. I, I'm in a I'm in a university environment where, you know, I have amazing access to researchers and amazing access to equipment. And it's like, I'm going to use this for climbing. Like, I, there, there's no reason I should not do this for climbing. And so uh, that's my new kind of chapter, I guess. Amazing. Oh, I love it. I can't wait to see what comes out of that. What's going on with your climbing? Um, are you still climbing? You psyched? You got projects? You training? Like, what, what's going on there? I mean, the pandemic, I'm like a rather private person. And also I've been like, you know, it's the pandemic kind of took a little bit of a hit on climbing partners. And a lot of my partners are now having babies and kids. Um, <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> and so I actually got super into rope soloing and I'm still like during the pandemic. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've been training. I've been rope soloing a ton, uh, but I love track climbing. I love the valley. I love getting on big walls. And um, I just have to find more partners that like, uh, you know, kind of, like uh, suffering a lot to, uh, you know, for some of those endurance routes. Um, but yeah, the climbing's been good. The training's been good. But I'm a little bummed that my uh, my number of partners has been starting to dwindle. So mm. I, uh, I need I need to open up that uh, that book a little bit more and and get some more uh, more partners involved. All right. Well, there's a lot of people listening to this, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> you might be getting some uh, some invites. After this okay. conversation, Dr. Jared Veggie, uh, J Rock, <laughs> J Rock, in the J Rock <laughs> in the house. Thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. Uh, really appreciate you being so generous with your time. And um, you've, you clearly think about this stuff a lot and prepared and thought about the list of bullet points that I'd sent you. And this was really helpful. I, I took a lot away. I'm sure that people listening uh, got a lot of benefit out of this conversation. So, Thank you so much. Cool. It's a pleasure. And thanks to everyone listening. As we've talked about, we will share all of the geekiness in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com under Jared's episode. You can find that right there in your podcast app, a link there. We will share the different videos that we talked about, and uh, you guys can get a visual of some of this stuff and go try it on your own. Best of luck, everybody, with your injury prevention and rehab. And thank you so much for listening. Hey, friends, before you go, don't forget to check out Rhino Skin Solutions. These guys make all of my favorite skincare products. I use the repair cream. And this time of year when it's getting hot, I start doubling and tripling down on the dry spray and the performance cream. There's a third antiperspirant product called Tip Juice, which is super awesome as well if you have sweaty skin like I do. So check them out. Head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your order of some of the best skincare products on the market. Also, be sure to check out Grasshopper Climbing. The Grasshopper board is my favorite climbing board of all of the boards on the market. There's many, many reasons why, but basically this thing is an entire climbing gym experience that you can have right in your home or garage. So yeah, if consistency is difficult for you in your climbing and training because of life circumstances, maybe you have kids, maybe you have a full-time job, maybe it's a long commute to the gym, 
consider getting a grasshopper board. Having a climbing wall in your garage is an absolute game changer for your climbing, in my opinion. So check them out. Check them out at grasshopperclimbing.com. Reach out to the sales team. And if you're ready to pull the trigger on a board, be sure to tell them I sent you and you can save lots of moolah on the grasshopper board. And that is it, my friends. Thank you again for listening. Thanks to Jared. We put tons of resources in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. So be sure to check those out. Appreciate you guys. As always, have an amazing week and we'll see you next time. Like we do